Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1027 with Sean Finter. And he said, but here's what you got to do. You got to learn how to learn, right? He said, you've proven, the only thing you've proven so far is that you can't learn their way. But he said, you will not allow them to define you. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your guest needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, with advanced automation and caller deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions. Reachify also simplifies workflows for your team, enabling them to operate more efficiently to attract, retain, and engage callers effectively. Reachify, be in control of the conversation you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. Restaurant owners and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee, their child, or their partner faces a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share CORE as a benefit in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion. Core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant when life does not go as planned. Support of Core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country. Visit coregives.com to learn more together we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily this episode is brought to you by pop menu look there is a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant like are you connecting with your diners and with the right message and could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining room has room for there's so much to consider and it can be overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people and that's why i recommend pop menu and that's why restaurants get pop menu frankly pop menu is technology for restaurants that are ready to grow for a limited time get 100 dollars off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot 
program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder of Bar Metrics, CEO and head coach at Finter Group and owner of the Franklin House, Sean Finter. My man, Sean, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm absolutely feeling unstoppable since 1973. Nice, man. I'm feeling unstoppable. Um, really, the direction I'm trying to take the show is just listening, paying attention to what my guests are saying, and my guests have steered me in this direction. We're here because people are talking about you. Uh, you first came on my rate. Actually, I've known about bar, met- bar Metrics for some time. It's come up over the past 10 years at, at least three or four times in, organically in conversation. I connected with the Daves behind okay. Hospitality DNA, um, who are also bar metrics uh, franchisees. Or That's franchi- right. Yeah, franchisee yep. uh, operators. And um, through their network of talking to, we had Gary Crunkleton, I believe, who said great things about you. We had uh, Drew and um, Kevin, who said great things about you down in Raleigh, North Carolina. We had Gary, uh, sorry, yeah, Gary, uh, I'm all over the place right now, Mick Gary. Um, Jesus, Jack, Jack, Jack McGarry yeah. from the Dead Rabbit, who said amazing things about you, uh, and here we are. We made it happen. So, well, well I hope I can live up to the all universe that. <laughs> is trying to tell me something, man. Yeah, and I, I'm psyched to be here. I know it's going to be good. But before we dive into who you are and how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah, I think a great uh, life mantra that came in handy in the last few years was that um, a a precursor to a breakthrough is often a break with. So I'm the kind of guy who always wants to do more. And I hit a point in my life where I couldn't do any more and doing less, spending less time with certain people, uh, less projects, less uh, shiny objects was a key for me. So when was this for you? Uh, about five years ago. Okay. So that'll be part of the deep part of the story as we go through today. So, I mean, can you paint a picture of all the things that you're doing and what you mean by you couldn't do anymore? Yeah. You know, I'm a typical entrepreneur that, um, you know, always working on the next thing often before I finish the two or three things I got in front of me and, um, shiny you know, syndrome or shiny object syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've also got four kids and a few different businesses and, and I belong to a lot of groups and, and I hit a point in my life where, you know, just couldn't continue to load things on. And, and I think, uh, hopefully, um, you know, we all get to a certain point of maturity where you realize that saying no is the right thing to do and less projects and less ideas. And uh, it certainly took its toll on me and I'm in a better place now. Everything you say yes to is something else you have to say no to. Right. And Or, you know, what a mentor of mine said, every time you say yes to something new, you're saying no to a commitment you've already made. Right. Right. You're robbing time from that. Only got 24 hours in a day. Right. right. Um, what happened when you said no? And what And what was the thing that you that came off your table? Um, well, 
a, a lot. Um, sold uh, a company that I had had for uh, two decades. Barometrics. Yeah. Um, shut down another business, another partnership. Um, you know, totally uh, overhauled my my schedule. This is right before COVID, so I made an good awful time. lot of changes. It was <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a, a good time for a crisis, I guess. But uh, yeah, I made an awful lot of changes, and and uh, you know, it's something I was really good at. Um, maybe the decade before and looking every three years, like, you know, am I in the life I want to be living? Have, have I got everything in place? You know, what, what do I want new? What do I want to do more of? What should I do less of? What should I stop doing? Uh, I got out of that habit and just kept building weight momentum and, and it eventually, uh, you know, it became really heavy. I mean, I think we're, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll bookmark this, but we'll bookmark this because we're definitely going to be coming back to okay. it as we're telling your story. But I'm, I'm interested in going deeper. And I think, cause I think the, we can learn a lot from that idea of slowing down to speed up. Right. Right. Uh, but where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Take us to the beginning. Well, um, I grew up in Canada, so I spent the first 19 years of my life there. Um, you know, I'm very proud of being Canadian and, and, uh, I love going back to visit my family. Um, you know, the winters were just definitely not for me. I'm not a winter guy. And, um, but that's where my story started. And, uh, it's where the story started in the industry. I was 12 years old. Um, working in restaurants, believe it or not, wasn't my first job. It was like my fifth job at 12 because newspaper route, uh, shoveling snow, cutting grass, any sort of work and hustle I could get. I was doing, I'd even work in a gas station, which I can't believe they let 11 year old kids work at gas stations back then. Times have changed. But, um, you know, getting into the restaurant business, um, I can say without a doubt, not only, um, changed the, the direction of my life, but, um, afforded me a life that, that I could never even have dreamt of, you know, it's just, and, and in hindsight, looking back to, um, getting in and, and starting out at a truck stop in, uh, in small town, Canada, a town of 2000 people, uh, to this day, it's probably one of the most remarkable places I've ever worked in my life. Why was it so remarkable? Um, like a lot of businesses, you know, uh, one person and built a core around him and, and a team. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. When I, when I started there, um, I got a job washing dishes, um, for him, for a gentleman named Mr. Panu. Um, um, he'd been in Canada probably 30 years at this time. Athens Greek came over with his wife, uh, when they were young with very little money and, and kind of built, built this life for themselves. Um, I get the job there washing dishes and, and two things happen on my first day. Firstly, um, he, he comes in, puts an apron on and he says, well, I'm, I'm with you for the first half of the day today. And uh, I said, really, you know, I'm just washing dishes. And he goes, this is the most important position mm. in my restaurant. I said, why? And he said, well, let me, let me tell you, if, uh, if we don't have dishes in the kitchen, we can't serve customers and they don't come back. If dirty dishes go out, you know, specks on the cutlery and, and plates, people don't come back. He said, this is the Intel center. If, if we're blowing it in the kitchen, you're going to see food coming back. You're half eaten burgers and soggy fries and all that. And, you know, so he said, this is like the hub of the business. If this doesn't work, nothing works. Mm. Now, I will say that when I got on the line in the kitchen, he stood beside me and said, this is the most important position in Russia. <laughs> but he meant it. Like, they're all important. They're all important. Every yeah. link in the chain. Yeah, matters. it's not like a GM is, is 60% of the job and everything else trickles down. Like, if you don't get them all right, then, then it doesn't work. The chain doesn't work if there's a break in it. Right. You know? But he, he spent those hours with me and time every day, taught me the difference between running a, a load at 110% Versus 90%, right? 110, it doesn't come clean. 90, he told me about the electric bills and how it runs. And that means every every 10 loads, we've missed out on a load, you know? So how, what what things cost, the interaction between the kitchen, front of house, and so on and so forth. 
So it was an overwhelming few hours. It was a lot to learn to, for a dishwashing job. And I had my break. And then he said to me, um, he said, uh, you finished your break? Uh, you know, probably 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, he said, come with me. And uh, he took me to the middle of the floor of the, of the restaurant, well, a truck stop. He didn't like it being called a truck stop, by the way. He said it was a family restaurant. Um, but I think by definition, if you have 20 tractor trailers parked in front of your business, it is a truck stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he, uh, he walks him in the middle of the floor in the restaurant and he says, look around. He says, what do you see? And, uh, you know, a bunch of adults, right? Guys with, with caps on and, and it's busy and a couple of kids over here and a lot of truckers. And uh, he goes, well, what else do you see? And I said, I don't know. Just a lot of adults eating food. And he goes, okay. He walked over to a table, a trucker that he knew, and said, you know, Bob, can I grab your keys? And he takes me out to the parking lot and uh, the transport truck, their brand new truck. And uh, he said, gave me the keys. He said, go open the door and then let me in. So I went in the driver's seat. And I mean, I remember climbing up that ladder. I'd never been in one before. And as soon as I sat down, I'll never forget because like air compression, it goes down. And I looked at the dashboard. It was much more like an airplane cockpit than the car that my parents drove, right? This is a different machine. Right. And he's now knocking on the window and I let him in the other side and he sits down and he says, shut the door. And we're both staring at the front of this truck. I thought I was going to drive it. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, uh, he said, what do you see now? And I look around the truck and I said, uh, wow, it's cleaner than I thought it was. He goes, yeah, these guys live in these trucks. They really appreciate cleanliness. So what else do you see? I look, there's a bed behind me. And uh, he said, yeah, they, they sleep in here. That's why they're lonely. They're burly, but they really crave attention and, and connection. What else do you see? And there's a picture on the dashboard of, of Bob from inside and, and a woman and two kids, I assume his wife and kids. And he goes, yeah, most of these guys have families. You know, So, so it was tough and, 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 and funny as they seem, you know, that they're missing. You know, right. so we spent about five or ten minutes in that truck. And I walked back inside, we stood on the floor, and he says, now look around, what do you see? Mm. And I noticed, I said, these four guys here are truckers, these two guys here are truckers. Even the hats, the the farmer hats were John Deere, the trucker hats were international. And he says, right, these are farmers, they're local, yeah, right? Totally different animal than these guys over here. He said, if we treat farmers like truckers and truckers like farmers, they'll stop coming here. He said, these people are local families that come in here. And suddenly, like, I had this filter as a 12-year-old kid, and I'm looking at the floor of a restaurant differently. And he goes, the worst thing that we can do is treat everyone the same way. Right? right. The golden rule, it'll it'll bankrupt us. Man. And certainly no one wants to be treated like a 12-year-old kid wants to be treated. And this was when you were washing dishes. This was in the, How long were you at this this location working? I worked there for four years. Four years. Yeah. And this was towards the beginning of your experience. This was my first day. First day. Right. Wow. So for everyone listening, think about, you know, I don't care if you're 12 or 42 or, or 72 starting in a restaurant, think about your first day, right? Like, can you, can you put that lens on someone? Can you change your perspective? And that was the first day and it only went on from there. Right. But just even that, that, I mean, there's so many lessons in that to really be observant, to recognize everybody for who they are, to not just to to make assumptions about people, but also just the power of of segmenting and and treating and speaking to each individual like the way they want to be treated and carrying that message throughout your marketing and, and paying attention to who people are. So you know how to talk to them and appeal to them. So powerful. Uh, And looking, looking at the formula in that too, you know, 
who's saying it and how are they saying it, right? This is the business owner. Now, granted, he only owns a truck stop, but he still owns a business and he's busy. He could have had the manager do this with me. Right. But the root to the fruit, right? He wanted me to understand from his perspective where he was at. And as I went on in business and you look, even companies the size of GE, you know, Jack Welsh got Cottonville to bring all of his leaders in within the first 12 months of working there to go root to the fruit with Jack directly right? This is what I believe. This is what I'm fighting for. This is what I will not tolerate. This is what we're after right now, right? They heard it and they bought in from the, from the head guy. And if GE can do it, a restaurant can do it. So you did this from 12 to 16. 16, yeah. 16. Yeah. Uh, what was next for you? Uh, so my, <laughs> my, my dream at that time in my life was tips, right? So I, I had the opportunity to go from washing dishes to work in the back line, the kitchen to, to cooking there. Um, I did get a short stint busing out front. I'm, I'm incredibly clumsy. I'm like the worst <laughs> busser or waiter or anything else. But of course I couldn't buy into that, you know, but, um, it was, uh, there was a restaurant across the road that was willing to take me on as a waiter. I was known as a very hardworking kid. Um, I, I always asked for a ton of responsibility and, and delivered. And if I made a mistake, I, I tried to try to make up for it. So I got a, I got an opportunity as a waiter across the road, which was a gig that took me the next um, 18 to 18 months to two years before I landed in the big time, or at least I thought at the time in uh, Toronto at Hard Rock Cafe when I was like almost 19. Damn. Yeah. So any key evolution for you, any lessons during this time, or did that not happen until the hard rock? Well, I mean, the hard rock is probably a different beast in terms of, you know, it's corporate, whereas these other spots seem very mom and pop. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely mom and pop. I think there was two things that happened in, in that time. One, uh, organically, you know, it was delivered by the, the universe in that, um, you know, I was like a lot of young Canadian kids, very uh, hopeful that I, I might make a dollar at some stage playing hockey. And, um, you know, that just wasn't the cards for me. I worked hard at that as well. But when you hit 12, 13 and you see guys pulling away, they're like 20, 30, 40% better than you. Um, so, you know, I, I tried and um, and I just came to the realization this wasn't going to be it. Um, around the same time was the discussion started about holding me back in school. And, um, and that to me was like a prison sentence. I just, I, I just couldn't even fathom, uh, being made to stay an extra year in school. Um, so, you know, back to that truck stop, I, I was the day that I found out that they wanted to, to hold me back a year. I was back and this is when I'm working on the line in the kitchen and I'm prepping for the shift. 13, and, 14. Ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. But 14 years old. And I'm, you know, I'm, I guess I was teary uh on my own thinking that i was by myself and mr panu came up from behind and in his soft and gentle way he barked out you know why are you crying <laughs> and i said you know being a tough young guy oh, i'm not crying <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i wish i was cutting onions but i wasn't <laughs> and i uh, said no tell me why you're crying and uh and i said i don't want to talk about it and I, he, I was sent to the stoop we had this stoop out back where his dogs were and and uh so i was sent there and uh he's he came out and he said to me what happened? And I said, you know, I had said that the S word out loud for the first time. I said, they, you know, I'm, I'm stupid. That's why I'm, I'm crying. You know, I, I'm going to be cutting vegetables for the rest of my life or digging ditches or whatever it might be. And, uh, he said, why are you saying that? And I said, what's well, so they're telling me at school? Like, it, you know, if I can't get through school, then I've got to have one of these jobs that I don't want and everything mm -hmm. else. And he kind of grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, uh, he said, it's all bullshit, Sean. He said, that's the S word I thought you were going to say. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the word stupid cut a lot more than that. And uh, he, he said they, they're, they're lying to you. He said they only know one way to do things. And uh, I'll never forget. Wow. He, said, he said never take advice from a person who drives a rusty Pinto. Right, he said. Unless you want to drive a rusty Pinto, yeah. he goes. They have no idea. What, he said. I, he said he had a second grade uh, education, and he said, "But here's what you got to do. You got to learn how to learn." Mm. Right. He said, "You've proven the only thing you've proven so far is that you can't learn their way." But he said, "You will not allow them to define you." Do you have learning disabilities? I have a, a really uh, <laughs> rare form of dyslexia. Really, and it's um, yeah, it's it's been it was a challenge. Um, for a very long time, I uh, was tested when I was 20 years old when I was living in London, England, and uh, <laughs> I either had a, a third grade reading ability and a second grade comprehension, or the other way around, depending on dyslexia. But I, I learned to read when I was 20, 21 years old. Wow! Yeah, uh, I'm dyslexic too. There's a lot okay. of people yeah. that are drawn to this industry who are dyslexic or ADHD or ADD. I would love to get somebody on the show who's a specialist on the subject to yeah. talk about how to learn differently and like how if you're, you know, if you're not fitting into the standard form that society wants you to stand fit into, like the school system, for example. Yeah. Um, like there's other ways, and the, the other thing. People who I've found, I've found that it's a pattern. Successful people in this industry, a lot of time, not all the time, but often, more often than other industries, have some type of dis- learning disability, and it's often dyslexia. Right. There's definitely a pattern. Have you noticed that yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of people in the industry, and, and as an entrepreneur, there's a ton of you know very famous entrepreneurs that have that. And I, I think, you know, you're, I believe we always hit these crossroads where, Something or someone uh, either makes you better or bitter, right? And and I, I honestly believe today that my dyslexia is part, a big part of my business success. Why? Early on, I learned to do a lot of things that young kids don't do, like negotiate with adults, begging, bribing my teachers to to see me through. Um, I learned to get up on stage, and whether that's being the class clown to distract from my disability. Um, I, I worked young because I thought I had to. I. I was attracted to mentors and realized if I can't learn that way, I've got to learn this way. So I think that um, at that point in my life, that was a catalyst for me and certainly an incentive to to get my act together. And I think later in my career, you know, my brain just processes things differently. You know, it's not very good for day-to-day tasks, um, unfortunately, but I can um, look at complex problems and and break them down and simplify them and, and, and draw them Big like that's picture yeah that's one of the things that, that I can do well that you know I could be in a room with a fortune 500 company and 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 listen and everyone has to absorb and then output and mine is always you know it's jumbled and then suddenly I have to make it make sense for myself to play back yeah. so and something that I'm picking up just from the short time we've had together is there's a really short channel from your heart to your mouth Right. You know what you're feeling and you find the words easily. Um, and I don't know if it's like the mind is very, uh, what's the word, plastic. And I think mm-hmm. like it's plastic um, from a day-to-day standpoint where you can literally create new neural pathways in, a, in this moment. But it's also plastic in our minds are all the same, but they they can all be so very different too. Right. Like the diversity of a mind and the strengths of weakness, the strengths and weaknesses of a mind, uh, like in just how we're all different, right? Right. And um, you know, the written word has only really been popularized over the past couple hundred years. You yeah. know, where everybody's expected to be able to read. I don't think it's 
but if you and I, and if you're alive today, all you've known is a, is everybody being able to read, but I don't think it's necessarily a human thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's one of those skills that is so important in the modern world. And I think we just assume everybody should be able to do it. But the social and emotional intelligence, I think there's almost like this level of plasticity where, uh, people with dyslexia might not be good with technical detail type things, but they're really good at social emotional skills. Right. I've found is that, something that you yeah do you support that or? i i do i do yeah. and and i think that if you look at the yin and yang of of uh reading you know when you're reading often if you're reading nonfiction, um you're reading somebody's story you know and so i wasn't able to do that so i learned to become a storyteller mm. you know what i mean i find a lot of dyslexic people are really good at articulating themselves and can keep an audience engaged and because in the absence of being able to be buried in a book in class when you're supposed to be you know, reading and being quiet. You're you dreaming. Know, you're dreaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, the, and then you can't wait to get that story out of your I head. I had to joke. The first thing I learned how to do in school was read a clock. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> is it time for recess? That's right. Um, well, this is great. I'm having fun with the conversation. So you kind of learn more about yourself in your late teens, early twenties. You, you get tested. Um, um, this was when you're in London. Are we skipping over anything? Well, so so I did that that stint in uh, in Toronto. So Toronto for me it was only yeah it was only an hour south, but I mean it was the difference between Annapolis and New York City, right? Mm. A small town and, and the big city. Um, and Hard Rock for me was um, was was a very important uh, brick in the foundation for me. Working for an international bar company, there's some of the few people that have become billionaires with a B through the bar business. And um, the systems they had in place, they had, they had enough systems to, to keep it consistent, but enough freedom inside the business model that people could be individuals. And and I really, I really loved it there. I did. I was there only a short time um, because I had an opportunity to go to London to, to work. Uh, when high school finished, I, you know, tell my kids that, you know, I'm not a high school drop it. I was there when school finished. I didn't go anywhere. I just didn't get the diploma. Right, I was missing two English credits and two math credits because eleventh and twelfth grade you have to read the problems, um, and there was a, a huge um, uh, attachment of shame with that for me. You know, it just wasn't uh, wasn't something that I was um, emotionally mature enough to, to really wrap my head around and, and couldn't talk about. And um, my friends who had gone off to London were working for Sam Smith Pubs there bartending and um you know told me about it on the phone this is obviously before pre-internet and uh it just sounded like this amazing opportunity and um you know in hindsight i i more um ran away from something in in canada ran away from you know who i felt i was rather than kind of ran to this opportunity um i was able to reconcile that in later years but it's um i think it's an important distinction for me to to understand like you know, how I um, grew up and what I dealt with so that I could be a better dad and, and understand that, like, even if it's not your fault, it can still be this um, shackle of shame. Yeah. Um, so with the hard rock, you, you mentioned something real quick, and I'm pretty sure you're still talking. At this point, Toronto was all hard rock, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you said they, they found this right balance between systems and letting their people be themselves. And yeah. I think that this it, there is a sweet spot. Right. And I think probably one of the reasons why the hard rock is so successful is in a world where everything was so focused on the bottom line during like the eighties and nineties and, and into the early two thousands, where we kind of lost sight of what's important, the the culture, you yeah. know, they, they were able to hang on to it. What did you learn about 
how they found that that sweet spot that that letting people be themselves while being plugged into these systems and processes. Yeah, you know, I, I've luckily had had experience working there firsthand, and then had enough time to reflect on um, what it was and and what I believe and why it worked. So there there's a, an incredible formula inside of what they did. Um, first off, they really did a great job of bottling their brand of hospitality. Right. So one of the first uh, cassettes that I heard um, was from one of their founders, uh, Isaac Taggart, who talked in, and I might have the percentages off by a little bit, but basically what he said was, um, we're going to show you how to do this our way, but we want you to be you on the way through. Right. So we have a formula, but the formula includes you. Right. We're not trying to make you into a drone. And he said, and if you deliver it, every guest, every shift, he said, here's what's going to happen. Um, 20% of people are going to absolutely love it and become raving fans. 60% of people will appreciate it and probably come back again. And 20% are going to absolutely hate it. And he says, I love those fucking numbers. <laughs> right? Yeah. So he, he helped us understand that what we're doing isn't for everybody and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Most restaurants, most bars try to pander to everybody and, and it's just then then you don't make anybody happy. Right. Right? It's all just lukewarm. So that was part of the formula. I, I got to understand how they hired, right? So they had this brand of hospitality. They knew who was successful within it, and they, they understood how to – uh, interview for these particular constituencies that they were serving. And I don't know if it's worth getting into what is that brand because every restaurant's different, right? You want to you want to hire for your uniqueness as a brand, yeah, and experience, right? Well, you know, well this 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 could be of interest to to people listening. You know, if you have a restaurant, you've got your brand. Hard Rock, you know, these guys. I, I don't think there was any accident in them becoming billionaires, right? But. Their brand is one of the most misunderstood brands in the restaurant what business. So uh, even we'll start with the name, right? What does hard rock mean? We all think it means rock and roll. Well, that all came about, they started in London. The original name was the truck stop. So they start in London. Um, they're in this old Rolls Royce dealership right off the park. And uh, they knew that the Brits loved burgers, fries, shakes, and all that. So they start serving that over there. They realized that truck stop didn't work for a name because in, in London or in the UK, they call them lorries, not trucks. Lorry stop didn't sound very good. They thought it might sound like a, a brothel or something. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, well, we're not going to do that. So uh, Isaac said, I, we're going to name it after the philosophy of my mentor, Sai Baba. Well, Sai Baba's theory is that we're born with a great big boulder on our shoulder. And we go through life chipping away at this boulder. And when we're ready to pass... We can reach up and grab that stone, that hard rock off our shoulder, cross our arms, and go into the next life. So that's where hard rock comes from. Interesting. But back to the to the uh, you know hard rock truck stop in in London. Uh, their pol- one of their policies was no reservations. You know they had people hold the table; they didn't come. London's so hard to get around in, so we'll get you in as soon as we can. And I think the first one, and this I might have this wrong, but it was a big name like Clapton was one of the first guys to come in and say. Um, can I get that table? I said, no, this person's waiting. And so he sent his guitar in, put it above his, his booth so that when people were waiting, they'd think that's a Clapton booth and he can go over there. Well, next up, the Stones, <laughs> the Beatles, everyone started sending in either pieces of clothing, an instrument, whatever else. And that's how all their stores got covered in this oh, merchandise. Oh man, that's a crazy story. Yeah. But, but that just goes to show like, 
You know, they had a brand. They stayed true to this brand of like keep chipping away, and and that's what they thought the shift was like, right? It was a it was a grind, but it's worth it. We're headed to the right place. And then the, what you do see in their branding on the wall: love all, serve all. Right? They they could not tolerate an employee who had any sort of bias against any sort of group. Right? They could miss it in the interview, but they'll walk you out if they find you rolling your eyes at somebody, or you know, you find out. Well, I don't like taking care of older people. Well, you don't work here. Mm. Right. Like if you if you don't have an open heart and you want to take care of these people, love all, serve all, then you don't work here. Mm. So they had a really cool philosophy, a kind of a it's actually a real hippie philosophy, I think. It's I know, ways. I love it. And I never knew this. It's eye opening. Yeah. It really is. Uh and you're giving us great detail. I really appreciate that. So is it safe to say that the the brand that they were trying to do and the culture they were trying to the build is like, hey, it's simple framing of like take care of people, love everybody. Uh, but I'm sure there's more than that. Um, yeah, there is. You know, if you look at it for, for what it is, right? They and every store was a little different depending on who who they were serving. Where I was, for example, uh, we were right down the road from Harley de- dealership and a and a and a biker bar and a, like a 99 percent or not a, a a biker bar, traditional one percenter bar. Um, there was a a large uh, elderly community uh, in the housing in this place. And uh, we got a lot of um, single moms during the day would come in with their, their strollers and show the kids all the paraphernalia. We were right in the Sky Dome, too, in a sports center, so it was cool to look out the window. So my interview, in hindsight, I look back, and, and three of the questions I got asked kind of off the cuff were, you know, a person walking me to the table said, oh, I've been looking after my kids today. And, do you, you don't have kids, you're young. And I said, no, I'm an uncle. You know, I love kids. And it got worked in the interview with elderly, you know, do you have interaction with that? And I said, you know, my grandparents, my four grandparents were everything to me. Yeah. You know, single mom, my sister's a single mom, mm. right? Yeah, I know now if I had like disparaged one of those groups, I just didn't get the job. Yeah. They, they had 25 openings for every job, right? So you don't need to take someone who doesn't So they're looking for the 51 percenters. And yeah. that's who they're hiring for. Yeah. The, the, that, that I think Dan Meyer famously coined the term the 51 percenter, uh, the, 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 per, the people that lean towards social, emotional intelligence and care. Right. And that they have that caring hospitality gene in them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. Any other big lessons from the hard rock before we move on to London? Uh, you know, something that I adopted from them with my restaurant group a little later in life was, you know, if you want to attract um, epic people, you have to do epic shit, mm. right? Like you really do. So what what do they do that's epic there? Um, you know, just a few examples. If you work with them, you get in, I think it's 12 months or 18 months and, and you prove yourself, you can apply like the military to be on another post around the world. That's pretty epic. Um, every store is pretty well funded as far as staff outings. And it wasn't you know, let's go out and get drunk. You can do that at home. It was let, let's do something really cool. And, you know, I only did like three or four in my time in Toronto. I remember all of them. Yeah. Right. Like, so, um, um, guest speakers they had come in weren't, um, you know, yeah, sometimes we're talking about cocktails or whatever it might be. Uh, one of the speakers we had was, um, Hey, if I was between 20 and 30 years old in Toronto, one of the more expensive housing cities in the world, how do you get on the board? Right? What would it, what would you do? What would advice would he have for his twenty year old self? Right? That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
great lessons there. So you, why did you leave the Hard Rock? What was the reason for going overseas? You said you're trying to get it, away from something. It was getting cold, uh-huh. <laughs> and and I had to get out of there, right? Yeah. Like I, you know, everyone was going off to college right. and and everything else, and it was just time, you know, it's yeah. time to go and and do that. And I had this opportunity to go to London, and um, you know, I w- I was based out of London for six years, so I left, told my family like, hey, I'm I'm going, and um, you know, again, I'll never forget landing at Heathrow, terrified, right? I'd never been anywhere. Had a backpack um, and took the tube. My friends were living not far from the Piccadilly Circus um, tube station. And I came up, and I remember looking up, it looked like I was going to heaven. It was like four escalators, you know, <laughs> up to, I'm like, I've never seen anything like this. this. Big bright light at the end. Yeah, if you, put them, <laughs> if you put them all together, that was the length of the town I grew up in. Oh, right. <laughs> and uh, the main street. And um, so I look at it and, and then I come out and, and I'm outside, right at Piccadilly Circus. And I mean... I was like speechless. The black cabs, the double decker buses, the red buses, all on the wrong side of the road. The ladies all dressed up. It was business day, right? Wednesday afternoon. The guys with the suits on, the lights. I was like, and then the historic buildings that I had seen on TV. I was like, so oh is this my like God. the early nineties? In the this was time stamping? this was uh, 93. 93? 90, 92. ninety three, ninety three, ninety two, yeah, yeah. Um, just trying to get the visuals in my yeah. head of what it was like back then. It's beautiful. So, you did you have a job lined up when you got there? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I had a job with uh, a, a temp job with um, Sam Smith Pubs, which gives you accommodation and three meals a day, sort of thing. Um, it wasn't going to be for me long term. Um, and I'd heard about uh, a bar opening actually right at Piccadilly Circus on Haymarket Street called the Sports Cafe, which is still there today in some form, but it was massive back then when they opened it up. And it was a Canadian and an American. And they were looking for staff, and they particularly wanted people from, you know, Hard Rock Planet. They wanted to kind of model that uh, success that they had. So I was only at uh, the Sam Smith Pubs for maybe six, six to eight months. Okay. Know. How long were you in London before going to Australia? Six years I was six based years. there. Yeah. So where was the majority of your growth as a professional during this time? Where did you, where did you think you evolved the most? Uh, you know, a little bit each place along the way, but... London was like my college. I worked for two companies after Sam Smith. Um, working at the at the sports cafe, I worked for the uh, consulting company that launched it uh, rather than the business itself. And so I learned a ton. I stayed on with them afterwards. But I also worked uh, through them with another um, uh, hotel and, and restaurant group that was all over Europe. And um, that, that company also had... Uh, a, a turnaround um, department, a shop. They would buy businesses or groups of businesses and go in and turn them around. So at the time I was young, I was really good with HR, building teams. I was always captain of my hockey team. Learned a lot at Hard Rock, um, Sports Cafe. We built a monster team, uh, incredible team. And uh, so I did that at, all over Europe. Um, in the time that I was in London in six years, I traveled to 32 different countries. That's crazy. Yeah. Not all for work. Um, I do a contract and the contract might only be 12 weeks. And then I wouldn't pick up on my next contract for say four weeks. And I would go and visit three countries in four weeks or five, six weeks. That's, that's a wild time. Yeah. Um, so how do you, if, if you could summarize how you think you learned or you grew the most, was it being able to see the big picture, being able to go in and, and ana- analyze a restaurant and kind of focus on where it needs improving yeah well you know i i I learned operations by putting myself beside world-class operators you know nothing was by accident i I took less money to go to certain companies to work for people and 
you know, was interviewed by HR, but said, I, I wouldn't take the job unless I got to talk to the you know person I wanted to work with. And I said, even if I get 15 minutes a week and you give me some extra responsibility, like this is why I'm coming here. I've, in my experience, when you say that and do that and see it through, like you get a lot of time from these folks because right. it doesn't happen very often. Someone's willing to back themselves. That's a huge lesson right there. Yeah. Yeah. I always, you know, I was given advice before I left Canada, like, you know, be more willing to take on responsibility and gain the experience than, than get the money. The money will come. If you get some deep experience and you get the results, the money's going to follow. And it was so true. I went deep rather than wide. Right. And gave up, you know, something today to get something. Yeah. Down it's the track. crazy how we have such a short scope when it comes to that when we're young. We're like, oh, I can make a dollar I can make nineteen dollars an hour over this eighteen dollars an hour. Like I'm gonna go to this other place, you know. Right. But like, th- that's just that's so short term thinking. Like, where are you trying to go, and who are the people that can help you get there? Do anything possible. Take a step back to be shoulder to shoulder with the right people who will help you get to the ultimate goal. Like, right. Sometimes you have to step, take a step back to go forward, or take a step to the left, take a lateral step if it means getting underneath a higher ceiling. Absolutely. Know? And I, you know, a lot of my friends send their kids over to talk and get some advice, or they're stuck and. You know, I'm not saying all kids, but a lot of younger people today say, well, I don't get paid enough to do that. Or, you know, I don't get, and I'm like, if they're giving you an opportunity to do it. And, and I said, where are they at right now? Like, you know, they're underperforming in this department. They want you to do something. Well, what if you went in and gained the experience and absolutely crushed it, you know, got a couple of people to help you and figure this out and crush it. Like, wouldn't that be valuable to you? If you had that piece of paper that said, I did this, I accomplished this. And then you did it two or three more times, you know, that's how you advance. Otherwise, right. You get paid a wage and it's an, attached to inflation. Yeah. And you get stuck. Great lessons. What were you looking for in these individuals? What was what was appealing to you when you were going to when you were choosing these opportunities based off the people you'd be working with? What exactly was drawing you to these people? How were you so- deciding? Well, you know, I the one thing, if you don't have an education, you gotta have a plan, right? Like it, and otherwise you're just drifting down a river. So, you know, my plan was ownership. I didn't know how, but that's what I was fixed on. In, in hindsight, it was, uh, it was probably the wrong goal for me. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a natural progression and I had no idea how many cool jobs there were in the industry that, that have nothing right. to do with the, the risk and the, and the stress of ownership. Um, and, and we'll talk, I guess, in a little bit about my, my, my stint as an owner, which I'm proud of, very proud of. We're real close. We're only a couple of years away. Yeah. But, um, I will say that, you know, my DNA is, I'm, I'm, it's not in me to be an owner of a bar or restaurant. I'm just not good in that regard. It doesn't sit well with me. I like to start things. I like to build things. I like to 10X things. And it's not that I get bored, but that's my skill set. Yeah. Right? So, like, if, if your job was to set up all the equipment for today and that's what got you high and everything else, doing this probably wouldn't be your thing. Right? So, right. me being the jockey on the back of that stable business and, and growing at 10, 20% a year just, just didn't work for me. So what I always tell younger people today is like, don't think that there's a natural ascension to, to ownership because th- there's a lot of things around it and even above it, you can make a lot more money that don't involve like, you know, the stress and, right. and, and agony in that. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I think we'll probably get to that, like you said, um, but anything that's worth hovering over your story during your time in London uh, that's worth getting unpackaging now before you start talking about your evolution going forward. Yeah. So London was where I, where I wrote my business plan, right. Okay. To, to, um, to acquire um, bars and restaurants. And I hope to do that with as little uh, external funding and as few partners as I could. So that's all I knew. I, you know, 
another mentor of mine said the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership, right? So he's like, you know, they will for a while, but at some point, and he said, especially two men, he said, you know, if you know one man, he's a pain in the ass and he changes his mind a lot, put two of them together and you've got problems, right? Right. So I wrote the plan in London. And, and for me, you know, I, one thing that, that early mentors of mine really drilled into me was just, you know, re-up your mentors every, every couple of years. And then they'll help you see the blind spots and fill in the gaps on that, on that plan. So that's what I did. That's the experience I wanted to gain while I was in London. And, and like I said, if I made just enough money to, to eat and live and, and got this experience, I would have been fine. The fact is I actually made really good money and I contemplated not leaving because they offered me, you know, a senior position, which more money than I could even wrap my head around. You know, a, a full-time job with great benefits and bonuses and everything else. But again, I knew that's not where I wanted to be. So, you know, the I guess the big learning for me in London was, and it was one of the first big good decisions that I made for myself was follow your heart, you know. And, and I'd been to Australia only once before. Um, it's a beautiful country. I've online. only been there once, but I'd love to go back. I'm going to have to chew on your ear to find out who I should talk to over there. I, I went there on a on a quick assignment to look at a business that to, they were looking at, you know, modeling after some aspects of it. So it's a cool gig. You go take a few photos, eat meals, yeah. study the business, watch it, and go back. Um, but I landed there, and and again, this was this that was my like thirtieth country I'd been to. I went to a couple more before I moved there full time, and. Um, and my mom was always saying, oh, when are you going to come home? And I said, oh, mom, I'll, I'll be home one day, one day, one day. And I got to Sydney, landed, went in downtown, um, the uh, opera house and, and the harbor, Darling Harbor, went out to Bondi Beach, and I called my mom from a phone box. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, and I said to her, I'm never coming home. Oh, I just said, and she said, what is it about that place? And I said, I can't even describe it's it. It's a special place. It's been in my heart since I, I lived there for 10 years. And Which I, city were you in again? Sorry. Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. Nice. nice. Yeah. I was down in Melbourne. Uh, okay. I haven't been to Sydney yet, but I'd love to go. Uh, one thing I love about your story is this idea of mentors. And like I knew even when starting this podcast that mentors were a big deal. It's even on the, the logo, a melting pot of mentors mm-hmm. right there. And that's really what the vision of Restaurant Unstoppable was, is how do I get all these people who are mentors to others and put them in one spot and just get them to like share knowledge and right. dump it out and, and pay it forward to the next generation of professionals. Uh, but there's nothing that's as amazing as finding that person that you admire and working with them for a few years. What is the sweet spot? You said, is it two years? Is it three years? Like, how much if like, yeah, like well, you said, you never want to be with one mentor for too long. Well, yeah, maybe. Um, I, I certainly have uh, lifelong mentors, you know, but, yeah. not, but not in a formal way anymore. You know, people I can call on and and really help me out at a certain point in my life. You know, for me, mentorship is is th- this is how I define it and how it works for me. Um, a mentor to me is, is somebody who has been to the place that I want to go and is on their way back mm. and is willing to invest in in somebody who's worthy. And and I don't say that to be arrogant that I'm worthy of anything, but there's a lot of people that, that want something, but they're not, they're not going to take the advice. They're not going to do the work. And anyone who's had a lot of success isn't going to hang around that for very long. Right. So my, my mentorships are typically um, either a monthly arrangement or quarterly arrangement. Um, I don't, I love to travel. So if they're in another city or another country, I'd certainly get on a plane to go there when it was convenient for them to have me visit. Uh, Otherwise I might do it on zoom. Right. But I know you're, you're too smart to go say, Hey, I want to come work with you 
um, when, when can you make time for me? Like, mm-hmm. what is your approach when you reach out to these people? What are you looking to offer in exchange for their time and effort into you? Well, you know, I've never, um, I've never had a paid arrangement. I certainly had a lot of, um, uh, professionals that I've hired to help me and I've, and I've had a lot of coaches that I pay money to good money. Um, but with mentorship, um, I usually start out a lot of the people that I've had, um, are, would be impossible to get to. Like there's no way to physically get to them. They all have gatekeepers right. and uh, not all. I've had some local people that, that have been amazing for me, but I would write and say, listen, very briefly, this is, this is who I am. I've, I've had mentors before. It's, it's, it's what's enabled my life. And I also let them know that it's not, um, you know, a one-way street. That I, that I'm also giving back to people, and I'm a mentor to, to several people every year. And um, and then I say very clearly, this is where I'm at. This is where I want to go to. This is why I think you can help me get there. And um, and then I can give you this. It's like a one page. It says this is how it typically works for me. But I'm open to any format that would work for you. Yeah. And so what I try to do is to to make it clear, make it easy, and um, and then you know. Uh, maybe monthly is the best, but I say I'd be willing to do quarterly if that right. was better for you too. And you said this is what I'm willing to give you. What, what is what are you willing to give? Uh, well, in the give or what I'm willing to do is the work, you know, and say to them that you know I know there's a frustration that mentors have that you're you know, and it's not that mentors are telling you to do anything. Most often they're asking you questions. You know, they're asking why the hell would you do that <laughs> or <Yeah. laughs> how does that make any sense or. Um, how long are you going to tolerate that person in your life? You know, those sorts of questions. Um, but you know, for me in my mentors and my boards, um, two very different things, but what I always try to do is, is all I can for them. And what I mean by that is to do what I say I'm going to do in the group, always give feedback. If I'm not going to do it, I'll let them know and say, Hey, this is why this isn't congruent with my values or this is yeah. where I'm, where I'm headed. Um, but then, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in this industry because of not to put down a plumbing company, but if you're on a plumbing company, you don't live near the plumber. Right. Not a lot he can do for you. Right. But I can open up doors in most cities around the world for, for my mentors, for my board. And when I can get them together or take them out, I can do some really cool shit with them and just to say thank you. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I was looking for is I think a lot of people, when they think of mentors, they think of a one way street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you've got to approach mentors thinking about how, what value do I have that I can offer this person in exchange for their value? Right. Uh, how do I bring not, how do I not just become a viability, but an asset to this person? Yeah. You know, and I think that once you, once you figure out what value you can bring to somebody else, maybe you're great with marketing. You know, maybe you're a young person that's great with marketing and you figured out the social media algorithms and you're, there's this older person, Hey, like I'll follow you around and I'll help you with social media for a quarter in exchange. I I would love to get some mentorship, something like that. Right. Create a win-win situation. Don't just look to get, look to give. Yeah. Um, You know, you're not going to be able to give, uh, depends on the caliber of the person, but often the money you'd be able to give wouldn't be significant, nor would they take it. Um, But their time is most precious. So with a lot of my mentors, after I get to know them, I'll get a, a, a email once in a while or a call from their assistant and say, Hey, um, you know, Sarah that you're working with or David that you work with, you know, they've got someone who, who needs some help right now. So now I'm helping the people that they, you know, so I'm saving them time because yeah. I know who I am and know that I can offer them value. Right. 
and it gets them out of a call that their best right. mate from university wants them to talk to their kid. The other thing I love about your story up to this point, too, is that you knew at some point you knew you wanted to go open restaurants. Uh, that's what you wanted to do. And you went and you were working for somebody and it was towards the end of your time in London where your job was going in and flipping restaurants. Did I hear that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is such a huge skill to have. Um, I think it's one thing to work in a restaurant. It's a whole nother set of skills and a whole nother career opening restaurants, right? Figuring out the market, creating a brand that fits in that market, finding good deals, knowing the the real estate, finding turnkey operations, yeah, things like this. When did that become your objective to open a restaurant, to open restaurants? Was it before working for this company that went and, and turned restaurants and hotels? Well, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I I didn't have this like burning desire to open a bar or restaurant. I just thought it was the next thing to do, and I thought yep. it was it was the highest return on my time. Right, keep moving up the ladder. Right, and the the reason I say that, like a lot of people that I coach today, had this burning passion to share their love of food, of cocktails, of wine, of cigars, whatever it is, with the world. I didn't have that. I couldn't cook. What did you have? Well. The funny thing is, you know, I I knew how to do restaurants, so I had a skill set, but my passion um, w- was very different than most uh, restaurateurs. Because of my experience with school, because of a few other experiences I had along the way, um, I really felt like a misfit, you mm-hmm. know, and I felt that, and and that feeling didn't didn't go away even when I was making good money. I felt like I I couldn't tell my whole story. I, I was horrified. Like people would say you know, where did you go to university? And I go, oh, I didn't go to university and hope the conversation stopped there. Right. So I knew I could make money in restaurants. And my idea was I was going to get them up and running. I was going to buy them out of bankruptcy, get them up and running like I'd learned to do in London, and then find the right buyer and, and exit and go. My passion was, and what I was able to do was to create a stage for fellow misfits like myself. And, I, and again, I'm not disparaging anyone I work with. I loved everyone I work with, the people so much smarter and more talented than me. But if you look at the team that I assembled in Sydney, part of our interview process, like at Hard Rock, you know, and a little bit of our marketing when we're looking for people, only a little bit, was mostly hand-to-hand combat and finding the right people. But we would say, hey, have you ever felt like you've been told who you are? you ever been pushed down before? you ever been told that you're a misfit? right? This is a company. We're taking people in. Everyone starts on the ground floor. My specialty in business at that time was induction. So I knew how to bottle hospitality and then I knew how to teach it to the right people. And I said, if you come in with us, if you spend three years in this company, it will matter. You will be a different person. You'll be looked at differently. We, we are going to be the best in the business. Mm. And and that's what we did. And I mean, we had people from all countries, of all stripes, of all, and the one thing we all had in common, and I don't like to say like a chip on our shoulder, because that implies like some aggression, but it was like, yeah, if you've been told enough times, like, hey, you're never going to be anybody. We had a stage, and I'd say to people, if you're at the right time and right place in your life, this is a stage where you can earn your shot. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to this industry is because it was the first place. I mean, aside from the fact that I grew up in it and I just love restaurant people, but it's where it's the only place I felt like I could be who I am, right? Which is usually not good for corporate settings, right? Right. <laughs> um, as I get older, I think there's a better line to be, you know, drawn 
and finding that, that place of professionalism, you know, yeah. especially when you start taking responsibility for younger people, you know, you want to be, you, you, you don't want to act like you're still 20 years old when you're well into your thirties and forties. Right. You know? Right. Uh, but there's definitely that spot in my heart where I just love restaurant people because they are who they are, yeah. you know? So yeah. I, I, that really resonates with me. Um, I love this. So ultimately, you, so you're traveling for work, you find yourself in Australia, Sydney, you say, this is home. I'm moving here. And the plan was to move there and go open restaurants. Yeah. The plan was to go there, um, get a feel for the city. So I, you know, I hadn't been out of bartending that long. So, um, I wanted to bartend at, at ideally kind of two, three different places to really understand the suburbs, the areas to, you know, get a feel for the talent that was out there and make money. Right. Yeah. I, I brought a bit over, but I wanted to, I'm going to need money to, yeah. this is a, a good spot to take a break to thank our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll really un- unpackage your strategy and how you, this is good advice. Too. I think when you go anywhere, you can't just go there and expect to open up restaurants. You need to kind of acclimate to the culture right. and, and build your network and, and study the city. So yep. great segue. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Are you overwhelmed by phone calls during a peak mealtime hours? Why let the phone ring when Reachify can direct callers to online ordering, reservations, catering, and so much more? Instead of losing business, automatically turn calls into orders. Infuse your phone with smart technology that can save you time and money and increase revenue for your restaurant. And while Reachify is paying for itself, you can allow your employees to focus on other tasks instead of taking orders and answering facts that are easily found online. Driving digital sales should be a priority as it's been shown to lead to stronger loyalty and higher ticket averages. Not to mention you're getting that precious customer data that you can market to. Reachify, be in control of the conversations you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. Again, that's reachify.io slash unstoppable. Restaurant Unstoppable is partnering with CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees, invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign, Serving Up Hope. CORE is an industry-focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Serving Up Hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily. There is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money and CORE has ideas to help. Whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions, CORE provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible. It does not stop there. Brands who commit to raising $15,000 or more for CORE during this campaign receive logo recognition on the Wall of Hope, a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry. Choose to participate and you will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support. 
support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait? Showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the Serving Up Hope campaign today. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall. All right, we're back in uh, in this in the timeline. Um, you were um, just about to actually you're, you're in Sydney, and instead of just going there and looking to buy a space and open a restaurant, your strategy is I'm going to go bartend in a few different places, build my network, get a feel for the culture. Why did you? How did you know to do this? Um, you know, the company that I work for, that's one of the ways that they did things. If they were going into a new country or a new city, you know, so I'd learned to, to do market research. Um, I also wasn't in, in, in a massive hurry and the way that I wanted to acquire businesses through vendor take back takes time anyway. So it was like, I just wanted to kind of get my, uh, get my feet wet, get a feel for things. And I was only going to bartend for a short time before I got into doing some consulting. Cause again, I was good at that. Um, if there's any, you know, sort of wannabe consultants out there, I get calls all the time about how do you get going and everything else. I always say the same thing and I don't think anyone ever does it, but it worked like crazy for me is that I would knock on the door of a place. You got to have two or three really uh, tight skill sets. You got to be able to drive an outcome in, in, in two or three areas. I was able to knock on the door and say, listen, I'm going to take a small retainer and we're going to measure this thing. And then I'm going to take 50% of the money that I generate for you. And you're going to keep, I'm going to pay you, I would say to them. Not many people say no to that. And they say, well, what happens if it doesn't happen? I said, I'll even refund the retainer. Hmm. It costs you nothing, right? And so the three areas that when I went to Sydney, there's a lot of things that I can do. And I kind of wrote it all up in the the, uh, programming that became Business of Bars with the Agio. But um, prior to that, the three things that I was doing, talking about bottling that hospitality, right? So figuring that out, I have a formula for that. And you have to work with the owners, you have to find out from from their guests what matters and so on and so forth. So I got that in place. And then secondly, how do you deliver it, right? How do you induct people through? How do you measure it on the floor? How do you make it count? And how do you amplify it? And then the third part was bars and restaurants, as you know, typically take 80% of their um, revenue during 20% of their hours of operation. Right. So I'm really good in that space. And assuming that a restaurant is profitable, let's say it makes $1 a year, all right, makes money. Assuming that, and they're doing, you know, in that, 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 that uh, peak hours, we're talking typically about 18 to, to 20 hours a week. If we can raise that revenue ceiling, every dollar that we make over and above that's worth about 70 cents to the restaurant. So if a business was making 10% a year before, I could typically take a business to 20 or 30%. Just in that 20% period yeah. where the, the business is most. Yeah, there's a formula for that. And I mean, looking, doing just a little bit of research, I only give myself an hour to do research because I try not to know too much about my guests because I find myself steering the conversation. Right. But you, you focus in on identifying the right people, process, and increasing profit. Right. Is mm-hmm. that what you just like? Yeah. You can say it quite the same way, yeah. but it sounds very similar. And that, yeah. But you knew this back then, going back to the, the early 90s. Uh, you know, or the late, at this point, it would have been the late 90s. Think about that. At 12 years old, I started to think about why restaurants work. And, and on the converse, you know, why do they fail? 
right? I've been thinking about this since I was 12. And then building this formula to say, how could we make this restaurant work? Why is it failing? How do we, how do we relieve that? So why do restaurants work and why do they fail? Yeah. It's, I think a lot of people don't start. If you look at, uh, I think one of the best, um, minds in, in business today is Charlie Munger, who's, um, Buffett's partner at Berkshire Hathaway. And Charlie Munger is famous for inverse thinking to say, well, before we try to figure out this business and how to make it work, let's think about every way that we could make it fail, right? Or what would make a relationship fail? Or what would make your health fail? Well, if you ate all the wrong food and you did no exercise, you never stretched, you got poor. Okay, so let's address all those things. Let's build systems into those things. Right, so that's what I did with restaurants. Yeah, so looking at the elements that need to exist and making sure that there's systems and processes in place to do those things consistently. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you know, installing uh, a business system and and the tool suite that I built over the years. Um, you know, it's much much like a car. You could put a, a new carburetor on, and you're gonna get better performance. Right. But you know, you really got to replace all the critical parts or, or rebuild them. To, to get a business to, to start right. to perform at an optimal level. And this, I mean, I wasn't planning on going into this interview plushing, or uh, pitching my, my sponsor, but this is one of the reasons why I love Restaurant Systems Pro so much is because I think that people hire consultants or outside work or uh, they purchase a tool or system to solve problems and they think that just by making that, that monthly payment, their problems are going to go away. But the thing is, it's like the, the restaurant industry is hard work. There's right. no getting around doing the work. It's an obstacle, and the only way to the other side is through it. And systems and processes are the is the path. It's the it's the it's the way through it. Right. Um, and that's why I love Restaurant Systems Pro because it it literally maps out like these are the core systems every restaurant has, and this is our step by step process to do it to the way we know it's done best. And then they put you on that path. And you, you're forced to go through the obstacles to do the work that's necessary. And that kind of sounds like that's what you do is you, you you take the time to look at these restaurants or these bars, figure out what they were missing, and then help them through the path. Yeah. You know, as, as a business coach today, what I do is try to help build internal strength, right? I'm trying to teach them how to do the things that I know how to do so that when I leave, I used to be a, a consultant, I'd fix things and I'd leave and they'd fall down. Right. It's great for repeat business, but it's not the uh, merry-go-round I wanted to be on. Right. There's, there's too many bars and restaurants out there. <laughs> yeah. So when you came to um, Australia, you were looking to open your restaurant, right? Yeah. So um, you went and you were working, um, you were getting... Uh, did we kind of skip over that? Or we got off that path somehow. Yeah, we haven't talked about how, how it launched there. So we, we talked about me kind of working in the industry there for a short time to get a feel for it and then um, and then doing some consulting, right? So I got on and and and, and the, that was part of the plan too to, you know, see if my, my, my theory and my, my systems and my tools worked in the Australian market like it has in others. And it, and it did. This industry, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. It's you, People bring wholesale product in the back door. They turn it in. They retail it. You create an atmosphere, you know. Right. And off we go. Take care of people. Take care of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so it, it did. It worked. And, uh, and it wasn't long. You know, my mechanism, and I don't want to get too complicated about business structure and, 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 uh, and how you acquire things, but there, there was no ego in it for me. So I didn't care. You know, I couldn't afford the building, of course. I didn't have cash. Um, and the business value, I wanted control of these businesses, right? I wanted control of the cash flow, certainly to drive the profitability. I want to control the HR. And I wanted the box. 
And in that, there's a great mechanism that's available in any country in a, in a VTB, a vendor take back. So I could knock on a door and I've studied a business. And I learned how to, to count customers. That's how we got here because you were knocking on doors and you were telling people your approach, I'll take 50%. No, that was a, that's how I was uh, consulting. Okay. But when I wanted to buy, I would not, I'd knock on doors or send a letter to, and I'd say, listen, I've studied your business. Um, I do not think it's profitable and I'm happy to, to give you the, my, my forecast on where I think you're at. Um, I don't know if you have any debt or, or, uh, or not. Um, I'd like to take the business off your hands and I'm willing to buy it for, you know, I'd have to look at the books, but I'm, this is an estimate of what I think I'd, I'd be willing to pay for it. And I could leverage you out over time. So was your strategy, so it sounds like your strategy first started with consulting and then evolved into ownership. That's right. So when, when you were the consultant, you were, it's not, and if I'm putting words into your mouth, I'm reading a lot between the lines right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you were you're probably doing your homework. You're probably going to these places. You'd see, okay, good vibe, uh, good product. Um, they could be doing this better. So you'd probably be doing your homework as a as a a guest. Right. I'm guessing. And then when you saw something where you're like, if I came in here and I made a little tweak here, a little tweak. So you already knew what your strategy was going to be. You try to find the, your ideal client, and then you would proposition them. And say, okay, like, and I'm not sure if I heard the how you do the profit right, but you say if I increase your revenue by this much, I take fifty percent of whatever the the extra is, as long as I'm working for you. So yeah. they're getting fifty percent of the additional revenue. That's right. mm-hmm. So it's a win win, and you just do that until the the contract's over. Yeah, I, I had a, a menu back then, which I wouldn't recommend anyone doing. I, I think you should just do one thing, one format, but. Uh, I was young and ambitious, so I had a menu. I could either come in and do this one thing. So when you say menu, the, the things you could help them with? Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I'd say I can just do this one thing for you, one of these three things or all three. And at the other end of the menu, the more elaborate option for them was I could take operational control of the business in all facets and, and again, still pay you 50% of increased profit. And I'm using 50 as a, as a marker. Could have been seventy. It could have been thirty, depending on the the position of the business and what I was able to negotiate. But at the end of the day, it was a short term uh, proposition, usually a year, eighteen months to two years. The proposition was this: I'll come in. You're tired. You're not doing a very good job here. I'm going to take over the business, but I'll be in charge of the business. So you know, often the owner was part of the problem. So I'm going to come in and take it over, um, and on a monthly basis, I'm going to pay you. Right, and then I'm going to build all this strength internally, and you don't want to re up at the end of the year. I hand you back the keys, and off I go. So, I love that. so that's how that operation works. I carried all the risk, right? But I got a, I got a big upside on it. So, were there patterns of because, like, I'm sure you saw that there were the same issues in a lot of these different places that you're knocking on the doors, and you're like, if I can just tweak these certain things probably it was associated with like labor management or upselling or things like this, like little things that you can make small tweaks and have huge back end results. Um, was there patterns? What were those patterns? If you saw any? Well, there, yeah, there's a lot of different things out there, but a lot of businesses, there is no plan after they open, mm. right? Like you were going to open up, there's going to be this Northern Italian, this and that. And well, our customers like Southern Italian and we're going to have this type of team and now we got these like it's it's a mess it's a mess and you know my one of my strengths is i don't get emotionally attached to a business i do to the people but not the business and so i'm able to pull it back and say listen here's why it's not working here's the change we're going to make 
I get everybody to decide if they're going to re-up and they're going to sign up for what I'm doing. Let them know that, you know, I got the name like the angel of death because I go into business. A lot of people disappear. If you weren't 100% into what I was going to do, I get it. I'm not right and you're not wrong. We're just not meant to work together. Right? So I, I was able to put together a pretty quick strategic plan, help them understand the brand, help them understand the values that I was now going to operate and abide by. And so were they. And if anyone stepped on those, they were going to disappear. You know, we just had a formula for things and it had to happen quickly. Um, kind of like get on the bus or, you know, get off yeah. situation. Like, here's how we're going to do it. Do you agree or not? And if we're not all agreeing on these things, then it's not going to work. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, that sort of work. I know people that have been doing that kind of work for, for years and years, but it's exhausting. It's like launching a, a restaurant is, is a certain uh, emotional toll and amount of energy turning someone else's train wreck around and trying to get back on track. And then having that person waiting in the wings, yeah, <laughs> telling people when, I, when I get back and all of that, but that's how I made enough money uh, to, to, to get my own place. Yeah. Right. To come in. And then uh, eventually you were taking the same approach. So you're, you're going around You're you're taking 50% of the, the additional profit that you're making. How many different clients did you have at one time? I could only do, um, you know, it wasn't even clients. It was properties that we were managing, okay. you know, like, so we could do, we, the, the most we had was four at a time. Wow. It, it a How lot long were you doing this before? Uh, a couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. So you landed Sydney, you start working in a couple bars to learn the, the market. Uh, you find some ideal clients at one point you're working with four of the max over, how many different restaurants would you say you worked with during that two or three year period? Six. Six. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you you had year long contracts with a lot, some of these. Yeah. Some of them. And they were all different. And that's what I'm saying. If, if I was to go back in time, well, you know what, this, this is a good example of me not listening to my mentors. Right. I, and I want to make it myself, make out like I'm a great mentee. I'm a pretty good one, but I have ignored some fantastic advice uh, for a tremendous cost. Um, with some of the advice that you ignored well that was to say you're out of your mind to try to offer this menu and different products and different relationships use one contract one methodology one team of people and go Mm. right and i was it's a hot shot because my experience in london was working on a big team that had all these teams and Uh, these menus and and uh i wasn't uniquely positioned to be able to do that but it was still much more difficult than if you yeah 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 so um so all of that to get to uh, getting my first restaurant at, at age 27. Damn. Age 27, a few years after moving to Sydney, you open your first restaurant. Same approach of take, knocking on doors and basically trying to find operations that, you know, the writing was on the wall that this this owner maybe wanted out where all the, well, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Like, take it from there. Like, yeah. Because I know that much is true. So so there's a very different profile between the the consulting work that I did and the the vendor take backs I approached. Okay. Um, and, and not speaking for anyone's finances, but just in general, um, you wanted a, a, a enough runway with the consulting work that they had to have enough cash to to make a few of the minor changes that we needed. Um, had to be a viable business. They couldn't be on their way out, exhausted. They didn't want to do this anymore because I did have an option to buy on on a few of the places, but you know I, I probably never was going to. They, they just weren't my type of business. I was just able to turn them around on the other side of the equation. Um, and again, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, but in the, in the, in the VTB world, what you're doing is you're looking for people who are done. Right. And, and again, you know, it's, it's opportunistic, 
but the the people that I approached, and it was typically with letters because they, they weren't in those businesses anymore. They were letting someone else run them. Some of them were even closed, but they hadn't, you know, officially declared. Um, so what I, what I, uh, the two types of people that I get, uh, the majority of people, when I write the letters, I explained, you know, Hey, here's how I see things. Here's what I'd be willing to do. Come in. I might be able to negotiate some of your debt down, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the first response I would get from people was, go fuck yourself. Like, who do you think you are? You, you don't want to pay me for my business or, you know. Um, the second type of person, which was more like the 10% group, <laughs> was, you know, I literally had people say that my wife's been praying that someone, that, to God, that someone would come and, and offer to let us out of this. Right. right. They were trapped in the debt. They had eight years left on their lease. They had uh, leases with uh, commercial equipment companies. Um, they, had, they had dropped 500 grand into furniture. And I said, listen, I can come in and leverage you out. And best case scenario, I'm going to pay them something. But when I looked at the debt load, you know, sometimes right. it was, I'm going to let you out of here. Right. So, I mean, that's a huge lesson right there. Look to be someone's exit strategy. There are more people than you realize who are in this industry who had a dream and just real just didn't had no clue what it's actually like that yeah. have turnkey operations that are looking for a way out and if you can be their way out and then get a hell of a deal in the process most of the people that i bought from had been hemorrhaging money for years why didn't they get out their ego they were mm. embarrassed yeah you know, you, you go hang that sign up and, and shut the door and you try to sell a business that's losing um, five grand a week. Like, who's going to buy that? So what was the first restaurant that you, you purchased that you actually owned? So we were right in uh, in Darlinghurst. Um, Sydney's famous for that big Coca-Cola sign. Right underneath that sign was a, a boutique hotel called L'Hotel, as was the name of the bar restaurant. So that was the first place. A really uh, weird and awkward place. It was like a long uh, box, like a long corridor, and it had street frontage on on both sides. A few tables outside, um, but the um, very famous. I don't know if they are still today. BKH Burley Kate and Halliday. They were called a uh, design firm. Had used it as their first, you know, restaurant space and and designed this thing. It looked like a swimming pool. Little blue tiles on the wall, dark ones, and light ones on the floor. It was shocking. It looked like a, a huge lap pool. And everyone that came in, and they they even like filled in the shelves for perfect symmetry. And the place went under. Like it was just a disaster. And uh, this is one of the places I was able to take on for. Well, let me just listen to you describe it. You can tell that the person who owned that was more interested in creating a space, not necessarily running a restaurant. Absolutely, and- yeah. More more concerned about his relationship with some um, eccentric artist right. who was going to come in. He wasn't a restaurant guy. Right. Like put it this way: behind the bar had like a, a, a shelves cubby behind inside he filled it all in for symmetry so there's no nowhere to put bottles oh man that's is one example of 20 crazy things i could tell you so in a, in a in a relationship like that i was able to go in write the contract take it over um now the landlord the person that wanted me in was the person that owned the building so they're gonna get the rent back um i was able to to write a deal on that and i was up and running you know very little money what was the appeal going back to that what were you 27 year old version of yourself knowing what you know at this point what what did this why this space why did you want it no emotional attachment <laughs> that's why i'm not a typical restaurateur yeah. uh you know and and i was 
a little bit more cocky then than I am now. I, I could have made a lemonade stand work. You know what I mean? Like it, it, there's a formula for it. Um, it was one of the ugliest buildings I'd ever seen. I, I thought, I said to myself, if I were a customer, I wouldn't even come in here. So I've got to change it. But I couldn't change it that much because it's expensive to make those changes. Right. So we did just enough to kind of make it cool and interesting. And then we made something remarkable happen inside. What? Oh, man. That, that was my first, and maybe that's par- why I'm partial to it. Um, you know, I'll start with the, the, the failures. Um, we, uh, we, we under budgeted on, on the change we had to make and that hurt, you know, I maxed, I maxed out on that. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I'm not a, uh, a developer. Um, secondly, I thought we can compete, um, you know, 18 hours a day in the Sydney's got, uh, an incredible coffee culture. Um, we had our asses handed to us there. You know, you can't compete with the guys across the road that have been doing this 20 years right. that have a loyal following and, uh, that didn't work for us. Um, lunches weren't even great, but we had we developed seven great dinners a week, uh, killer Sunday brunch. Um, over time, Sunday became our second busiest day behind uh, Saturday. Uh, live music. A friend of mine was a producer there. All these young artists would come and jam in his house all the time. Brought them all down. I said, guys, I can't pay eighteen musicians on a Sunday. They said, if we can eat here and have a drink or two, just let us jam. We'll come and jam. And it was the best Sunday jam session. So we, we just focused on every segment and how to make it work. But at the end of the day, it was like back to that original formula. We knew our brand of hospitality. I hired people that would see it as an honor to take care of the, the type of clientele that I wanted to hire. And we brought them, most, most people that I hired, I would say, I don't have an exact stat, but I'd say that 80% of the people that I hired had zero industry experience. Wow. I hired them from Blockbuster, Hertz Rent-A-Car, um, the local grocery store, a kid who I saw, you know, hustling, helping someone take their rubbish out, um, 20 years old, and said, hey, where do you work? And I'm working down at the paint store. Have you ever thought about working in the restaurant industry? I got a, a six-month induction program. After that, here's how it all works. Come in every, once a month on Tuesday night. We show people how we do this. So that's how we built teams. And... Um, it was an awesome thing. You get one, and then it just builds and builds. So when you say we look at every segment, what do you mean by segment? Break that word down a little bit more. Yeah. So when I work with my my coaching clients today, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that and biggest blown opportunity that both bar and restaurant operators have is they'll get Friday night, Saturday night cranking, and then they'll turn their back on that and start to look at well, what do we do Wednesday lunch or should we do a bingo night on Monday? And like I said earlier, I, I go in that business and say, okay, you're taking 80% of your revenue in these two blocks, and let's put Thursday for these two peak hours in. And if at the moment you are producing um, $5,000 per hour in that, in that block, um, what's it take to get it to six? Because if we can get it to six, $700 of that 1000 that we add on is pure profit. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, hour after hour after hour. So we first look to optimize um, peak hours, and then we set a pro forma in place that kind of allows the leadership team to manage around that, right? So, you know, an example is that you'll you'll know that, that this particular bar um, caps out at, at $2,000 an hour. And so, you know, our benchmark is we never want to see it drop below 1800 And if it does, at the post shift, we're going to find out and analyze what happened. And you could see sometimes it's like, a bar back had an off day. Mm. You know, the manager on duty 
was at a breakup and wasn't available. Uh, or when we put two, our two best bartenders together, we typically do $400 less an hour than when we put our A bartender and our B bartender together, right? One's on high output, one's more the face of the business and back and forth they go. So it's, it's so you, chess yeah. rather than checkers. So you set these, these standards based off the data, the numbers at the end of the day, you run the numbers and immediately you would know if you were at an off day and you would try to solve it in that moment and you'd look for patterns. When you found the pattern, you'd create a new standard operating like protocol. Right. Yeah. To, to, to make sure that never happened again. Yeah. We'd look at the soft spot and say, well, what's the system that we build in around here? What awareness do we have to have here? What reporting do we have? And then when I step back from it, who's going to captain this segment, right? Who's going to run this block of business for us and constantly look to, to take it up, you know, 5% a quarter. Got it. Right. When was the, when did you own? You're 27 years old, but what year was that? So um, I'm born in 73. So 93 is 20. Uh, so this is like 2000. 2000. 2000 so you opened Bar Metrics in 99. So Bar Metrics came before. So, owning, so that was when you were consulting. Yeah. So Bar Metrics was, I needed a, um, a tool to, measure inventory a lot better than I was. Uh, my, my assumption, and it was kind of a crude assumption, but I took the time to kind of verify, and we were losing uh, around 12 to 14% of our, our liquid, and I didn't know why. I, I had a pretty honest team, you know, I just I couldn't put my finger on it. And there was two or three different um, uh, beverage um, inventory control companies that I tried, and um, I found myself wasting more time with them. Like they just didn't have the technology to, to do it and they didn't have the know-how. Um, so again, this is another mistake. Not listen to my advisors. I'll just build a software tool. And this is early day software, right? So they're like, Sean, do not do this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, probably one of the most expensive mistakes I ever made. And it turned into a, a, a company, a global company that I'm very proud of. But uh, man, did I have my ass handed to me in the in the world of software, right? Like it, we just didn't know what we didn't know. We did certain things in house. We outsourced. We had consultants. We had we had a mess, and it just burned cash. So luckily, because the restaurant business, I was making good cash. But that's dangerous when you're young too. I wasn't spending on coke and holidays, but n- now I'm blowing it on software. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Coke's a lot cheaper than software. I found out. Right, programmers aren't cheap back, especially back then, because there's only a few amount of people that can do it. Right. right? Um. So you develop basically the set of systems for running bars and you start implementing these systems in your own business and you're, I'm sure you're fine tuning them in your own business and you're selling the rights to use your systems. Well, so I I had, we got, we got the prototype of the software working. So the software obviously runs on, on your laptop or back then handhelds are coming out. So either uh, digital scale, which interface with the, with the, with the tech and then we're scanning the barcode. So the basic premise of it was that we're going to take a, a, a bottle of uh, maybe vodka and someone would say, well, that's 0.2. Someone else says 0.3. Well, that's the difference, right? Maybe that's your 10%. And when you scan it, it recognizes the, uh, the tear weight of the bottle. Each bottle is unique. You put it on the scale. Now it's only measuring the liquid unit mass. And it's going to say that instead of 0.2, that there are, you know, two or a or, uh, hundred milliliters in this bottle. Got it. And then that all merges together with the, with the POS and the POS is going to tell you, you know, of course it reads a shot of vodka, a shot of this, a shot of that, but a, uh, an old fashioned, you know, it's, it's two ounces of this. And, and then if you want to measure the syrup, so everything decremented down. And so we could run real time on site and find out exactly what we we're missing. So my bars were running with like 
no bar is perfect, but we had like one to 2% loss. Wow. And when people would come in and hear about this, they'd say, hey, can you help me with it? Well, my staff in the beginning were doing that. I wasn't setting up to do this. And uh, when, I, when I eventually did sell the restaurant company, um, that's, that was really the launch of Barmetrics. So I thought, well, maybe I'll do this or, or I'll get the software ready to, to sell or to, to license as a product. And um, so I had, I don't know, 20, 25 sites in Sydney running really well with it. And uh, when I started to hand it over, that's where it fell apart, right? Why? A few reasons. One, uh, the owners said, hey, now I'm back to the wolves counting the sheep again, <laughs> right? Like the people that are, are I'm trying to figure out if I can hold them accountable are now collecting the data and producing the reports. Um, secondly, um, it's not the um, highlight of a, of a general manager of a bar or restaurant's week to get on his hands and knees and go and do it. It's just not their job is or not what they signed up for right and uh, and therefore anything i don't want to do i don't do very well right so and then finally this is around the beginning of the product explosion so now instead of having 200 SKUs or 400 SKUs, the businesses have got 800 different products some bars restaurants had 2,000 4,000 wines wow so managing a database of that size is, is a skill set in itself Right. So, so all these were the different challenges to make sure I understand. The first challenge was if you're handing, you can't trust everybody. Basically, if they're if if the the people who are stealing from you are also creating the report, there's no way of you knowing they're stealing because they can fudge the numbers. Is that did I hear that right? There's a great that, there's a great old expression, you know, trust in Allah, but tie up your camel, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big challenge. The second challenge was just the it's a lot of work and to get people to go through all the motions was a challenge. Yeah. Not only a lot of work, but like just like running restaurants. Yeah. But, but like any, if you have a spreadsheet and I just poke a couple holes in it or put a couple pieces of bad data in it, the whole thing's wrong. Right. Right. So that was a problem. And these guys like, they're like, okay, now I got to go back and double check all my work. And then I got to be at work in an hour. So that was a problem. And then the third challenge was just the, the cultural shift that was happening with these just, outrageous inventories that were starting to, to, to emerge. Right. So yeah. if you're managing a database of 200 in Excel spreadsheet, I, I, you can do that. You Got put it, it up to eight, 800 and then different lines, you know? So now it's uh, Smirnoff uh, strawberries, Smirnoff this, Smirnoff, and then you get into wines. Um, for example, I think it's French wines. There's no uh, uh, law to have a barcode. Right. Right. So, okay. So now we got these wines and so now you're typing in the names, French names at that, you know? So you even start with French names, man. Yeah. Especially being dyslexic, you know. Like, I see some of those things. Right. I just can't make it happen. And selecting words. something's one thing. Adding a new product's a complexity. Because then you got to put the name, the varietal, the year, what all... You, and you put that in wrong, you can just see. Now you've got a, a pot of spaghetti in front of you. Yeah, I can see that happening fast. So was this around the time where you think to yourself, the solution is to franchise this and to get people... That if this thing has legs, if Barmetrics is going to have legs, it's going to be as a franchise where I have franchise uh, franchisees uh, all over the country who are going in and actually doing the work for the restaurant. It's not just the technology, but it's a service and technology. Well, so here's what happened. I built the restaurant group up to – we had eight properties under management. How long did it take you to get to those eight properties? From the first Six one? and a half years. Oh, wow. Yeah. We just kind of took them one after the other and, and, uh, and then – I had an offer. Um, well, my daughter was born. Um, so Macy um, was born in Sydney. So was my son, Reese. My other two kids, one was born in Canada and one was born here in the States. 
But um, when my two eldest kids were born, um, I realized like, you know, being a restaurateur, like I mentioned earlier, like I'm not built for it. Uh, I'm I'm the kind of guy that like like a psychopath. I'll have a place that's profitable at forty grand. It's doing seventy or eighty, and I'm sitting out in front of it on a Tuesday night, wondering what I'm going to do. Right, like I'm never happy. Right. <laughs> uh, and that and that, I mean it when I say like that is not a healthy condition as a human being. Right. right? You some, at some point, you got to realize if I got something making twenty points, it's it's growing quarter on quarter. Let it be, and that's just not in my in my DNA. So. Um, I had someone who wanted to buy a couple of the properties. Um, I said, they're not for sale. I just happened to have a board meeting a day or two later, and I told them about it. And they're like, well, yeah, isn't everything for sale? Like, And I'm like, well, I don't know. What would they pay for? Because without me? And they're like, no, we think you've done a good job of systematizing it. You've put some good leadership in and whatever. And and um, and so we, we, we decided that I was going to bundle it, and um, they could have all eight, and then they could – you know, do what they wanted with the the properties they didn't really want. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to start going backwards and then picking up more. Like I, like I said, with my kids, I was already like, yeah, if there's an opportunity to get out of here. So I did, I sold, um, I sold the group, um, right around the time that like my phone was ringing off the hook for barometrics, people saying, but here's the thing. I, I started also in the, in the restaurant ownership, um, track, I started coaching back then. I was trying to help other operators to kind of avoid some of the pain that I had had. I teach them some of the things that I had learned and I loved it. It's, it's what I did for free as far as business wise. So they say, you know what you'd love to do if you do it for free. Um, and so I said to my board, I, you know, I think I'm going to sell the group, sell the software to somebody else. And, and get into coaching. They said, well, what evidence do you have that the market's willing to pay for coaching? Where does it work? I looked around the US, the UK. Yeah, there were some individuals with big names, but no one had made a leveraged business with it. And again, the benefit of a board, uh, one of the board members said, well, if you plug this software in, said, well, first off, he said, what would your services cost per year? And I can't remember back then, but let's say it was $20,000 to coach a, 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 an owner of a restaurant or a bar. And uh, he said, well, and what would, if you plugged your software in and ran that service, what would that make them in a year? It turned out around the same number or even more. And they said, wouldn't that be the way in just to go in and say, if you plug this in, you're going to generate this. And then with my coaching, you're going to make more money on the back end. You're going to kind of reinvest in yourself. And I mean, it took off like a, like a rocket. We went from um, Sydney. um, The goal was, it was a hundred clients. By the time we got to 70, we were getting ready to open our next office in, in Melbourne and then Brisbane, and then, you know, I feel like Forrest Gump, but next thing you know, I'm, I'm flying back to, to come back to North America, set up offices across Canada, the UK, and then we're in eight countries I'm telling your mom you're never cities. coming back. Yeah, well, I was only back for about 18 months <laughs> to set up a few businesses. So, and I think it's important to, to point out, too, and we, we kind of picked this up from the interview I recorded with um, Dave Domzalski alone. Yeah. Uh, so Dave... Um, was the first Dave I had on the show yeah. before I did the interview with Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzelski together when their second book, Hospitality DNA, dropped. That's a lot of Daves. Uh, that's yeah. a lot of Daves. Yeah. Um, but what I got from the, the first conversation with Dave Domzelski um, was that Bar Metrics is a software and it's a process to manage your inventory, uh, specifically your, your you know your alcohol inventory. But it's it's more than that because you have like you have people to come in. 
It's not like you you buy the rights, the bar metrics, and your your team is in there doing all the stuff. You're contracting out inventory, mm-hmm. but beyond that, it's they they're coaching you up on best practices. So they're looking at they you know, they get the data, yeah, and they say there's something off here. Let's go find out where 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 it's going. Yeah. So part of it is is yes measurement but the other part of it is correcting that's right yeah so they 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 definitely have the best tools to to capture that data and create that awareness um and not only that to to reconcile on site which is a, was a key part of the process so that you know i never liked the idea of a contractor coming to my business telling me you know i got all these problems that no one else can really see and and that's the way it is and walk out now i'm fighting with my internal management and an external contractor so the way i designed it was Hey, we're going to come in. We'll get in at, at six o'clock in the morning. At eight thirty, we'll be ready uh, for whoever's going to sign off on this. And then they say, "Well, I want to challenge this." Okay, let's go look at that. And sometimes, you know, you pull that TV, and behind it is another cupboard that you put in last week or that we didn't know was there. Whatever. Yeah. So the idea is that you take ownership of the data before we leave, and then we help you build a strategic plan to go after and get that get that money. Right. Um, that and and so that's one problem you solve. But with Barometrics, the way I set it up was that I had this whole whole other t- tool set. Everything I'd learned was say, so, hey, here it is. You know, help your clients this way. So it's different offices do different things, right? Some guys like the the, the systematized machine that they just go in. I pump out. I do I don't know forty audits a week. Um, get paid. My guys go and do all the work. I meet with clients sometimes. Other guys do less audits, and they'll like Dave and Dave will do more coaching and consulting. Got it. Um, what I'm, I'm curious. What on average, what percentage were your clients off by? You said that you, you know, at one point you'd get yours within like ten to twelve percent off, and they couldn't figure it out. But like on average, when you have somebody who's new, like are they in like the thirty forty percentile as far as like the alcohol they're losing like what's a common number to see so we we had exclusive or or extensive data in in eight countries um and it's different country by country um which country is the worst the u.s by far (laughs) yeah you pay people the least amount of money right and uh give them the most autonomy right what do you think is going to happen right um australia for example sits around 10 percent, eight to ten percent so that's direct loss you buy 10 bottles of vodka one of them's gone yeah uh, U.S. it's around twenty percent, and and it depending on the type of bar, depending on the owner's involvement in the business, et cetera, et cetera. But twenty percent is not uncommon at all. Some places are thirty or forty. Wow! But at twenty percent, um, you know, every bar metrics office, you could ask them for their numbers, and they'll tell you what our average uh, client does. But it's not uncommon to have that client sit down at two percent for year year after year. So just putting the system in place, and your employees becoming aware that there's that they're tracking it. How much of an impact does that have? Like uh, what, how many points will be shed in just like that first month? People knowing they're being monitored. I'll first say that I, I, that the losses that this industry occurs, is there theft here? Absolutely. There's people that steal things and give things away and feel that it's justified. 20% in the U S on the, on the beverage side, 10% on the food side, right? You pay grown men and women to come into work and pay them nothing. They don't eat at home. Right. right, they come in, they eat at work, and when the two days off, it's not uncommon not to eat anything or eat one meal in that time. Right, it's what I would do. Right, if you're starving me to death by paying me in Washington D.C. ten dollars an hour, right? How you're going to earn eighty dollars in a shift? It's just it, the math doesn't work. Um, that said, um, what was the question how do we get to? 
I think the the original question was um, just from implementing. Oh, the oh system. yeah, yeah, with the awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So with the awareness, um, you've worked in bars and restaurants, right? Yeah. So th- there's only two types of bars and restaurants. One type, if I if you're my friend and you come in and I. Hey, give, give you a bottle of water and your two friends, the two girls, these two drinks are for them. And no one ever says anything about it. That's one type. The other type is six days later, this guy, Dave Domzalski came in here. Six days later, someone says, does anyone know what happened to one bottle of water and two shots of this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> People that like make a living stealing do not work at bar two. Right. Right. <laughs> Why would you? Right. Because yeah. 95% of them are bar one. Right. Right. So and having said all that, you know, a lot of people – a lot of people drink behind the bar, you know, and, and you build up a tolerance that way. A lot of people think, well, you don't take care of me, so I'm going to take care of my friends. Right. There's a lot of justified theft, and, but there's also a ton of overpouring. That's a big part of it, too. Huge. Just, not, just people just not knowing how to pour, you know. Uh, but, I mean, what gets measured gets minded, right? right. Uh, and, I mean, I don't, I'm not, we're not here to sell bar metrics, you know. It's a great tool. I think the Dave's I, I already sold, in, already sold the company. And you already sold it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, anything in the, the, from owning your first location to your eighth location, key lessons, key evolutions for you? Yeah. Well, oh my God, so many. Um, time's going by so fast. Too. I can't believe we're already an hour and a half of recording time. It's oh, crazy. wow. Yeah, so you know, I guess a few of the bit the big lessons for for those that do want to um, uh, scale up is to you know what I wouldn't do again is all eight of them were, were all different you know bar restaurant dive bar like I was an opportunist right so I wasn't it was it was a mathematical and a financial formula not a business line of course I had to be able to make the box work but it was a box um, I wouldn't do that again I would pick kind of uh, one or two. Uh, types of business and scale those. I, I'd, I'd look for those. I'd be much more selective. Uh, a few reasons for that. It, it's just complicated to run, right. you know, multifaceted, multi-brand businesses. Um, I always thought if we had this core culture and and this credo that we all live by, that I'd be able to move people uh, place to place. It's not the case. Right. Staff that I loved that were were so helpful. They're like Sean. Please never make me go back to that dive bar again. Or I can't work one more hour in that nightclub. Yeah. Right, so for me, I I I do that. I I uniform. People aren't cogs in a wheel. No, yeah. no, and you like what you like, right? Like you can't it, swap out parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. Um, two is I I would have been more patient. You know, I, I think that the the owners that I work with today that I really admire um, are just a lot more patient. They're yeah. a lot more selective. Um, they they have a much more. Uh, um, healthy life um, than, than I did then and, and than I did even later in life um, because they're, they're a patient, right? They're not at their venue on Tuesday wondering what they're going to do to get Tuesdays cranking, right? right. They're able to, to breathe and, and all of that. Um, and I guess the last kind of major thing in the scale up was um, even though I had a board in place, I did not um, start with the end in mind. I, you know, Back then, the the growth was was driven by um, ignorance and ego, right? Hundred bars and restaurants. Why a hundred? Because it's a stupid thing to say. It's just bigger than than six, than seven, than eight. Would you say earlier, like people go to work for con- companies doing outrageous things? You got to be outrageous. Were you just trying to be outrageous at that point? No, I was a, I was a, uh, I was a kid. I was yeah. a I was a immature like. 
you know, if you can do this many, well, then certainly you can do more. Right. You know what I mean? So that's that's apparently not the way to run a business. And, um, you know, now I help clients and say, hey, listen, like, you know, it, it, if, if nothing else, like if something happens to you, you know, how does this business go if, if your husband has to take it over or your wife or your daughter? Um, and I tell you, for a lot of people, it's the first time they've thought about, like, how do you get out of here? Right. And the, and the subconscious thought is I'm going to keep doing this and it's going to become more valuable and then someone's going to give me a big check one day. And not everyone's that fortunate. Right. The, the, the exit strategy, I like to say, is death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, for most people, that's the plan. That's right. They just do it until they can't do it anymore. And when you have that destination point in mind, you know, as a coach today, like it, it, it's, it's everything. It's a North star, right? It's what drives us towards that, you know? And, and without it, it's just more, more is the business plan. Right. And at some point more becomes too much. Right. Um, and I, I love that you, one of the biggest lessons you had was this idea of just not trying to be everything to everyone yeah. and just really focusing on one thing. Uh, I think, you know, Kathleen call Kathleen Wood calls it the, the one thing um, I'm getting more and more friendly with um, Ed Doherty and he talks about one degree and there's this reoccurring theme coming up of be really good at doing one thing and do it better than anybody else. And then, and just once you can't get it any better scale it right, and then give it legs. Um, I mean, my outlook on what I would do if I was opening a restaurant has absolutely changed. Kind of like you, like, like I, some, after studying the industry for so many years, I wonder if I still want to open a restaurant. Like, is this really what I want to do? Like becoming more self-aware and, and actually understanding the industry today, like in just what it takes, like, man. Well, let me ask you, if you were open a restaurant, why would you want to do that? Like what would compel you to open a restaurant? Um, for me, it's always been the people. You know, I think when I was younger, it was a little bit about ego and being, I mean, everyone loves to be seen. So what would your interaction with the people be if you're the restaurant owner? Not that much. Right. But really, it's restaurant people that I love. It's the, 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 the like you, much the like you. Come in? Or the no, staff? No, it's the staff. It's the misfits. It's the people yeah. who are the truest versions of themselves, and they find a place that they fit in in the restaurant industry. And that's really why I started, I mean, so I resigned from aviation, was a commercial pilot, went okay. back to school for marketing and hospitality, wanted to work in restaurants, couldn't because I was $200,000 in school loan debt. And I said, if I can't work in restaurants, I want to work with restaurants because I love restaurant people right? because they're my kind of people. I'll get into sales. And it was my time learning and considering becoming a wine salesman that I discovered podcasts. Uh-huh. And I was like, you mean there's an opportunity where I can just travel and talk to people? Right. People that I love, restaurant yeah. people, sign me up for that. And that's and I thought to myself, if I can learn and generate enough revenue with the podcast learning and helping enough other people become successful through the podcast, then I can take that revenue to open my own restaurant and I'll have a whole bunch of lessons along the way. Okay. And I might have just been talked out of it. Well, <laughs> I, you know, have you read the E Myth? Yes. Okay. So that that I suggest anyone looking to get in you're going to become the mechanic that becomes the garage owner. And you no right. longer get to work on cars. You no longer get to talk to customers. Right. You no longer get to hang out with mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> you know? if, you, if your thing is making pies, you're going to be too busy working on the business, not making pies. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not being humble when I, when I say that I wasn't great at food. I wasn't great at cocktails. I wasn't great at interior design. I went into the business to build misfit teams and yeah. that's what I did. So right. your strength is building teams. Yeah, and then and then wrapping Social, a system, a system around that 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 almost 
guarantees our success. What does that look like, the wrapping a system around it? I don't know if we've really gotten into that yet. Well, we've, we've touched on it. So if you look at, at you know, how, how a business works. So, for example, um, why do, again, back to, to inverse thinking, why do restaurants fail? So many different reasons. What's, um, what's the main one? What do you think? Why do restaurants fail? Um, lack of profitability. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's um, the ultimate scoreboard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what but, uh, leads to that? What leads to it? I mean, it could be uh, so many different things. But um, I mean, you think I'd have just an, uh, like a just a committed answer to that question. But mostly, I talk to people who succeed. <laughs> they fail just because of the people problems. Like you know, it's it's. I think it's it's a matter of getting burnt out because they have to do everything all the time and they don't have the people and the processes in place and they're just caught treading water so that that's part of it and if you were to google you know why do restaurants fail the top 20 answers the the number one answer is not in there like that's that's why eight out of ten fail that no one really knows why they fail it's like this enigma that's out there i think it's i mean what what is what is your answer i'm curious well i know because i've studied two and a half thousand businesses so i know with certainty why restaurants fail and i'm going to tell you here it is and and Let's let's put ourselves in a, in a banker's shoes, right? If we were if we were the bank and you and I were young strapping entrepreneurs, we went to Mister Banker and said, "Hey, we want to borrow a million bucks to open up this restaurant. It's going to be awesome, right? It's going to have food, it's going to have drinks, four walls, a ceiling, right? Probably some tables and chairs." And he'd be looking at you, going, "Uh huh, yeah." And hey, you want money from you? You know, what's the risk involved in this? Well, here's the deal. We're going to sell uh, we're going to sell beer, and it's going to be nine dollars uh, a pint. That's going to be one of our offerings. And if we're to look at the breakup of a beer, and we cut it in three, the customer knows we're paying about one third of it for the beer. Right? We've all bought it before. We know it costs money. One third of it's going to be for what's around us, the fit out, the chairs, the the whole deal. And one third of it is going to be for how we feel on a subconscious level about our time in that space. And if I go to your place once, twice, certainly three times, and I don't get that feeling, right? The definition of hospitality in, in my mind is how a person feels about themselves while they're in that space. Mm. Do I feel seen? Do I feel welcome at the highest level? Do I feel loved by these people, right? Are they excited right. to see me? Or do I feel invisible, like an inconvenience, you know? So this is what makes a business work. And the bank manager goes, man, this is awesome. Good. Who's going to deliver that? Oh, great. Timmy. Can I give you my answer before we go in for it? Because I feel like <laughs> yeah. I know the answer. I think it's having people-dependent organizations and not system-dependent organizations. So the number one reason is that hospitality, the way someone feels about themselves, is the main determining factor in whether a guest returns to that business. Which is dependent on? Hospitality, a connection between two human beings, the way that I feel, a, a, a reason to return. So let me tell you how, how we overcome this in a second. Yeah. But let's just stay with the banker. We say, okay, so you're, you're, the key product, the key determining factor is this feeling that people have, right? And you can't guarantee it. You can guarantee money with a fit out. You can right. guarantee money with a product. But you can't guarantee this. So people you're gonna, are unpredictable. You've yeah. got to count on – and so he says, hey, tell me a little bit about the staff. Well, they're 24, 26 years old. They don't want to work here. They do not want to work here, right? They want to be in Hollywood. They want to be elsewhere. Um, Oh, so they must be emotional giants, right? They're, they're, where do they train for this work? They've never trained for it. Uh, 
Billy broke up with his girlfriend via text. They were together for two years. He broke up via text because he didn't want to have that emotional conflict with her. You know what I mean? So that's that's our front man on this on this incredible ask to to get this person to come back and see us based on the feeling that he had interacting with you. That's what the business is all about. Most people don't understand that. Yeah. Right. So is so they fail because they don't deliver that emotion of the hospitality. Is that the answer? That's right. Yeah. They fail because they don't give the customer one third of what they're paying for. And if I didn't get one third of what I was paying for at your restaurant once, you might have made a mistake. Twice, yeah. I'm not coming back. Right. And you know why? Because we don't have a contract and I can go to the next place and the next place and the next place. And worse than that, if you really let me down, I'm going to punish you online. I'm oh. going to tell everyone that you screwed me. Mm-hmm. And I can't say because it's a subconscious play. I can't even say that I didn't get the 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 attention that I was looking for. I, I didn't get the feeling I was looking for. I've got to say I didn't like the cocktail. I didn't like the fi- I didn't like the look on someone's face. But the truth is, you didn't feel seen. There was something missing. Yeah, yeah. There was something missing. I'm loving the conversation so much that I forgot to take another break to thank our sponsors. So we're gonna have to do that now, and we'll come back to unpackage this a little bit more to talk about where you are today, what the business looks like today and where we're going. And uh, and hopefully we can help you connect with some of our listeners as well. This episode is brought to you by pop menu. There are a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with your diners enough and with the right message or could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining area has room for? It can be a lot and very overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people. And that's why restaurants get pop menu. Pop menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy with pop menu. You can attract more guests to your website. That's designed to easily collect their contact info and data. So you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you with pop menu. You can also stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business and also pop menu lets you make all your systems work better together improve margins and conquer the chaos of restaurants digital presence pop menu technology for restaurants ready to grow if you are a restaurant unstoppable listener you can get 100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, 
with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. Uh, so you just kind of spelled out to us the number one reason why restaurants fail because they don't see their people. And I think um, I 100% agree with that. And I think the, the reason why I think having people-dependent organizations over system-dependent organizations can be a challenge for what you just shared is because peop- the, the amount of turnover, like we go to a restaurant to be seen because of the relationships, right? And then when those people leave, there isn't a system for the next generation of person to come in and operate at that same level. Right. So you become dependent on these individuals. And when they leave that magic leaves with them. Yeah. And it's even more complicated than that. I'm sure But, but I, I think hopefully I can make it simple. Think about three circles that are connecting together. Okay. Right? Diagrams. Yeah. Uh, one of the circles is your brand of hospitality. Got it. Right. The next one is your team member. So yeah. bartender, server, their, their character type, their values and so forth. And the third is the guests that you're serving, that constituency. Right, those three things have to come together. Remember what I said with Hard Rock? They said, "Hey, if the if the guests, we can't control the guest type. So if twenty percent hate us, he was fine with that. Mm-hmm. Right? That's how it's got to be. You got to yeah. play to the top. You got to play to the the drop in guests, turn into a raving fan. Right? And like I said about my staff earlier, that I could take staff from a pub and send them into the nightclub. Like this is an amazing person who I'd want to spend time with my kids. He goes in the nightclub. He's miserable." Right? Like we bounce right. around and go place to place. And then that brand of hospitality, if you think about three different types of, of potential um, staff member coming in to work for you, if you're able to articulate your brand of hospitality, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is why we do it, this is how we make people feel, this is how. There's three types of people. You're, you're going to put them into one of three buckets in front of you. The bartenders who's applying, you'll either determine that, man, this, this guy would hate doing this. They're going to look at you and go, what? what? Wow, that, that doesn't sound cool. The second type will probably be able to bring enough emotional energy to the shift to deliver on that. Problem is they get whacked in the teeth two or three times by a, by a disgruntled guest, and two, three hours left, they're going to be miserable, and you're going to start seeing negative feedback online. But the third, and in my experience, that's about 5% of people that apply. The third is someone who will actually get high delivering that brand of hospitality. They'll love what you're doing and think it's cool and fun, and they'll have tons of energy at the end of the shift, emotional energy. right? So you got to get all three of those things right to deliver on number one. So that's the hospitality aspect. I said there was a main reason. Most people haven't figured this out yet or how to deliver it and how to scale it. But I didn't hire a bartender or server or host. We had a front of house team and a back-of-house team. I said, if you work in the front of house, no matter what you do, you're going to do three things. You're going to learn our playbook for hospitality. We're not going to treat all people the same. You know, consistency one, I can show you the playbooks on these. This is how these people, I'm writing a book on this right now. This is how these people um, enjoy. This is what they love. This is what they hate. This is how we do it. Consistency two and three. 
factor. Complicated four and five, but let's just say we've got that in play. Okay, so that's what you're going to deliver. That's our hospitality. Number two is if you work front of house, I make clear up front that I was a for-profit business, right? It wasn't a charity. We couldn't lose money. But I also really believe that sales is a, a key to hospitality. Like being able to take someone through our full offer is a gift, right? Being able to read someone and not pushing them into an upsell or doing this or doing just be able to guide them, be a great steward of our, of our offer, right? So I'm going to teach you how to sell with dignity. And number three, you're also in our marketing department because the best person to market to, to come back in the future is already sitting right in our restaurant. Right. So I said with each and every person, we're going to watch them. We're going to study them. And before they leave, we're going to map them to a future experience. And we had those experiences, right? This particular customer right. type would enjoy this sort of thing. And full court press, we would invite them to that. And I said, if we don't have anything to map them to, chivalry. Walk them to the door, be kind, be cool, and say, hey, I would really love to see you again. You guys yeah. should come back and see me. What is it about the, the the current, I guess, or the new emerging generation that's so adverse to profit and think that being, putting profit high on a priority is, is almost like a bad thing? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the kids that I talk to, <laughs> I really don't have that mindset, and I'm sure there are some. I think profit in the absence of, of any sort of other goal or moral is is a tough thing. Uh, people that are lining up to work at SpaceX don't think, oh, I don't want to work for Elon Musk because he's the richest man in the world. I don't give a shit. They right. want to work for something exciting. Right. Be, work underneath a maverick and a leader um, that's literally going to, to Mars. Right. I think th- I think there's this, this mis- understanding of how profit works and when people when organizations prioritize profit should it be number one no there should be some some type of overarching purpose mission people you know but you need profit to take care to be fiscally like to be responsible you know to take to provide security you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs security is right there over the physiological needs i need to feel safe you can't let or make people feel safe unless you can provide that security to them. Yeah, I, I think that, well, let me let me talk about the poor owners for a second, and I say that jokingly. Uh, I was one. I work with them every day now. Um, owning a bar or restaurant is one of the highest-risk assets, and not even just because 8 of 10 go broke. Uh, people choke on a chicken bone, right. and they want to come after your, your house where your kids live. Um, you know, unfortunately, people, you know, things happen in your restaurant that people want to hold you accountable for that, May or may not be within your. They control. leave your restaurant. They get in a car accident. That's it, and right? You're on the hook. So I, you know, with my clients, I say if you can't over time make twenty points out of your business, I, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't. You know, I, I, I just don't think it's worth it to make five or ten percent, or or make five one year and lose five the next. That's just my personal opinion. However, um, where profit does become a dirty word is if you're raking a lot of money out of your business. And you are not taking care of your people. Right. You're paying adults nine dollars an hour. I, I, you know, people say, "Well, that's the minimum wage." Well, you don't have to pay the minimum wage, right? Right. You do well. I think they should get rid of minimum wage because, in my mind, minimum wage is people justify paying people that because it's like saying this is okay. But if you remove minimum wage, I think the market's going to determine what's okay. Well, hopefully, responsible adults can get it in the right place when there was no minimum wage people 
pay two dollars an hour, right? That's the problem. That people take advantage of people if there's no. But can you get away with that today? Because there weren't things like Monster dot com back then, where you could see what people were paying. You know what I'm saying? Like, would you go take the job for that person that was paying two dollars an hour? I don't know. I, I spend a lot of time in the kitchen, and it breaks my heart to to meet people that don't have a voice, right? If they weren't yeah. getting paid properly and they're being abused, whatever it might be, like they just don't have a voice or they're afraid to speak up for a lot yeah. of reasons. And, and I think, though, that like a healthy, profitable restaurant should be um, an inclusive package, right? You should be educating and advancing your people. You know, I'm not saying you got to pay people five times, the, but take care of people. And, and that is a profitable business, right? I'll give you, I'll give you an example. My, my kitchen uh, at the first place I mentioned in Australia, we, we did a few things. We, most of our staff, uh, back of house staff there were Thai. Um, and it's very common in Australia. Um, they, we started developing a program to advance these people. So first off, I said no dead end jobs. You want a dishwash? Fine. But after a certain amount of time, you got to be moving up. In order to move up, you're going to hit a point where you have to interact in English with people. So you can't make people learn a language. But I said, if you want to work here and you want to advance, we offered English on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a second language. Mm -hmm. Um, we, um, said, okay, we looked at the kitchen, the schematic, and if this station here takes five people, if we can do it with four, right? Because you know, if we if we had five people, two A's, uh, a B, and two C's, four A's outperform that group any day of the week. And I said, with that 20%, we'll spread it across, and you guys will make yep. that wage across you. If you can do it safely and sustainably, right? So I always look for ways... We had an education budget for them. Um, we had bonus opportunities for them. So someone might be listening and say, wow, that, that sounds expensive. I can barely manage my kitchen. We ran our kitchen with 20% less people, almost no sick days, the incredible culture. And whenever we did have a job fair, I mean, we had a lineup down the block, right? We, we bought them new boots every 12 months, industrial boots to work in the kitchen, right? Low cost high impact things to right. help build people to build businesses to show them you care yeah you know we we did care and but we wanted to be meaningful that their family saw that we cared yeah. yeah right and that we were we were genuinely taking care of them and how do we know what they wanted we just asked them right <laughs> but i mean like, yeah but like it, it, you need to be profitable to do these things to pay people that's yeah. the whole thing like you need wealth to spread wealth it, it's it's like a, a ratcheting effect right like right. You know, people that take advantage for a long time burn their industry reputation and, and, and make some money, and then they're going to start doing the right thing. No one believes them. They think it's right. a trick. You do what you can when you can, and you budget, and you're, you're honest with people. And even before I knew what open books management was, I was running open books only because I expanded too fast, and people thought I was some trust fund kid. And trust me, my parents still live in the house I lived in when I was a kid, right? I'm like, here's how the business is doing. And they were like, my fear was that they were all going to leave me. And you know what happened? They all rallied around me. They all said, hey, we can do this. Yeah. And everyone's ch behavior changed a little bit. And that discretional effort from each person raised just a little bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I love this, man. Where Where is Sean Finter today? What like What is your life today? Life today, you know, living... Uh, Living in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I love Annapolis, by the way. It's a cool never, little town. Never yeah. been here. Heard of it a bunch. Was riding my bike around yesterday. It's a cool little town. Man. It is. I, I yeah. really like it here. It's a little cobblestone the town, the capital yeah. of, of Maryland. 
Um, we're on the Chesapeake Bay. So we're, we're now in the Franklin House, which is my office and, and function center. And we've got a couple of bars in here. It's a passion project for me. It's a 115-year-old house that I love. and It's a cool house. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've got this place. I live eight miles away on the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, just waiting out my kids that are kind of the youngest ones going into high school soon. Um, Four more years. Yeah. So we got, we got the <laughs> countdown clock. But, you know, Ali and I, we, uh, we travel a lot for work and speaking. And, and, um, but the main thing for me now is, is I coach. I coach a, a group of um, bar and restaurant operators um, with COVID, obviously. Um, I put everything online, did everything I could for free and helped the industry out. Um, so I'm back now to, to, to coaching, um, you know, from people you've never heard of uh, that have one venue that want to have two or three other people that have a couple and they want to retire in two or three years to um, Jack McGarry was trying to scale across the country. Jack McGarry, yeah. um, dead rabbit. I've loved working with Jack. We've worked together for a number of years. Uh, said Moses, who's part of the group with pouring with heart. Another past guest in the show. Love said his book um, is a book is pouring with heart, pouring right? with heart. Now yeah. he's got leading with heart. He's writing right now. Nice. Um, so yeah, I work with a range of clients and, uh, and I love it. I'll and have it, to reconnect with said when I'm out West. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Um, how, do you know when his book is going to be released? Uh, he's still writing. So probably six months or yeah. eight months or so. Nice. I yeah. saw, I think there's, there was a photo of you online or a photo of him on your Instagram. I noticed, I think, or maybe so, it was- so yeah, with the coaching group, we, we get them all together here, um, two or three times a year and we do like kind of an intense two days together, yeah. two and a half days. And so he was in, in for that. Um, that's yeah, awesome. And like, I, I, I built the group because, you know, despite the success I had in Sydney, there's still a lot of pain inside, a lot of mistakes. And I was very alone, right? Like you could talk all day about mentors, but that's an hour a month. And, uh, there wasn't any group that I could join. I, well, I joined entrepreneurs organization, but I was the only restaurateur in it. Yeah. Um, so I developed the group that I wish I had at that time. And, and it's a formula of a few things. Obviously, number one with me, they get all my systems. I coach them how to implement, coach their teams, how to turn their businesses around or get them cranking. Right. Um, and typically they do like a project every trimester. Um, secondly, um, kind of my Rolodex is theirs. I bring in incredible speakers from inside the industry and out. So we're constantly learning. And that becomes uh, like a de facto leadership program for their team, right? A Zoom doesn't cost many more if you bring eight of your managers onto it, right? So we've got that happening every month. And then the third part is just them being connected. Some of these people have been together for five, six, seven years, and uh, and they're not alone. And, right. you know, I, I can honestly tell you that, like, I, I do everything I can, but sometimes, like, I haven't had that experience or, you know, I've not operated a bar in, in – Milwaukee or Los Angeles. And sometimes these guys will call each other up for help and they will literally jump on an airplane and fly across the country and spend a couple of days and bail each other out. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's the real challenge right there is it's, it's lonely at the top. Um, when you like, who, like even just having a group of guys or gals that you can just get thoughts out to. Right. M- most of the time we have our answers but we need to be able to articulate our answers. We need to be able to put them out into the universe and to have people on the receiving end of that, to talk through what you're feeling and to get clarity on what to do and just, and having people reinforce what you're feeling and saying, yes, that's what you need to do is all you need to hear. But when you don't have that network, I mean, that alone, in my opinion, is so powerful. Yeah, it is. And without it, it's uh, hardwired for it. Yeah. Not only are you alone, 
but you're you're also you know without any sort of barometer because every event that I run, everyone I bring in, like part of what I hope I'm I'm good at is is creating a container, you know, where people can really share and be honest and vulnerable. And, you know, the first time people put their numbers out, like they have no idea if this is good or bad. Oh, it's so scary. Right. And then we kind of benchmark them against their category and whatever and people in the room and, and put them together and they're like, oh my God, this is what, you know, pe- people are doing. And, you know, you could be, say the number was five, five out of 10 or five out of a hundred, five percent. And this guy over here is at, is at 20. And so, you know what the difference is? Only these two things. That's, right. That's all he's doing. And those light bulbs and the systems, that's the best part of it. Yeah. Love yeah. that. Um, so Restaurant Unstoppable's mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Hopefully, if we do that, we can transform the world. Where do you think we are right now and where are we headed? Like what, like what needs to change about the industry to move into a better future for all of us? Uh, man, a bunch of things. But I think the, the main thing um, – is, is realizing the opportunity. It's, it's, it's what it always was, but it's becoming um, an, an even greater need. There's, there's, there's such a, a need for, you know, we talk about B2B and B2C, but about H to H, human to human, right? Two people connecting, seeing each other, creating this, this, this feeling around which we, we generate a business. And I think that you know, once we, now we have AI and we're talking to people less, you know, I'm old enough, I'm, I'm 50 now, I'm old enough to, to remember when I wanted to rent a movie, I'd go down to the local movie store and I'd ask the lady that worked there, uh, the movies that she's seen or other customers. Yeah, what's good. Right. Yeah. I'd go and I worked at the gas station, people get out of their car and I would pump their gas, I would talk to them about where they're from, what they're doing. You go to the bank and you talk to a teller. All these people are gone now. You know, you could live your life in like silence and the, the human desire is to have a connection with another person. And I think that the restaurant business today, in order to, to foster that connection, we, we have to strengthen the connection between the ownership, the leadership, the management, and the staff, right? If we get that right and then build out around some of the, the formulas that I talked about today, it, it, I'm not saying it's impossible to fail. It's hard to fail if you build these things out right. And I don't say that in a conceited way. I, I've picked up enough businesses and and – help them remain profitable year after year, decade now, going into a decade of play. Um, and it's all around that that philosophy. Yeah, there's a book out there um, right now. Uh, it's called uh, Teen Human by Douglas Rushkoff. Are you familiar with that name? No. But it's this idea kind of that like we're society with technology and AI and all these things are moving in a very unhuman direction. All the things that humans have to do today are in, inherently inhuman. Even social media, with like Instagram, and like it, it becomes about serving the algorithm and doing what we're supposed to do to get traction, not making real human connections. Right. And it's just like we're being. It's just like it's like we're aware of it, but the, the still the common narrative is you have to do it. It's nece- it's necessary to, to be plugged into all these digital places online to to use the modern platforms to be successful you not doing it isn't an option right and if that's true i think there's a real issue (laughs) because all those things are inherently not human right you know so we're being forced to to be inhumane or and act in ways that just are inherently against our nature to survive and we have a a society that's unhappy and more unsatisfied than ever before right because we're we're missing the things that you grace like gracefully pointed out the the human connectivity of just talking to people 
Yeah. Without like, do you want to go further into that? Well, I'll just say that if you think about that, that pint of beer again, you know, how many venues have you forgiven because the couch has got a little rip or it's getting a bit run down? How many venues have you forgiven because the beer was a little flat or the food wasn't great tonight or whatever else, but you just love the people that work there. Right. It's just such a beautiful vibe. When you go in, you keep going back. Right. You you slop, slop one of those one-thirds out, and I don't care how good the food is or how nice, but like at some point, the people are dicks they're serving you or, or want nothing to do with you. The minute they give you your food, they're back on their phone. Right. You don't go back. Exactly. Right? So like, and the funny thing is, is it's just, to me, like, there's just not nearly enough focus on 100%. that. And if you get that right, it always gets better. I'm not saying you'll win just doing that, but it'll always get better. And if you get it really right, it's hard to fail. So is the answer to the question of where do we need to go, what needs to change, is is that into a more, uh, I guess, like a more human future where we're relying less on these things and being mindful to choose the path of human interaction and not around it? Yeah. You know, I, I think that where... If I was to just uh, top line it and say where where do we need to change, I would say that if you if any owner was listening to this, that building people inside of your business is what what's going to build your business, right? Like marketing, I see people pouring tons of money into into marketing, paying marketing companies, and and all you're doing is going out of business faster. You're just exposing more people to a poor offer, right? Right, I see people spending money on on a bingo night. Like you, right. you can't compete with a guy who loves bingo, right? And that is just a great vibe, and he's the owner operator. You're not going to compete with that. So it's like, how do we how do we take what we have and and make sure that like everyone on board is on board with what we're trying to do, and have we articulated that right? And if we have, how do we now lean in and develop right. a, a business where we truly connect with people? My favorite line, one of my favorite lines, is the best social platform is your dining room floor, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's so true. Yeah, uh, and we're built for that. We're literally hardwired for that. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Um, anything we did not discuss that you were hoping would come out of today's conversation? Now is the time to bring it to the conversation. Hmm. Anything we didn't discuss today, man? We've discussed a lot. Um. Nothing comes to mind off the top of my head. Yeah. Where I mean, where do you think the industry is going? If you had a if you're getting back into the business tomorrow, what would you be doing to be ready for the the future? You know, I, I would, uh, the, the tech side of it, um, doesn't appeal to me. We were just at a restaurant that had a robot picking up the little, the plates Roombas. and yeah, doing that. <laughs> um, you can order off an iPad. Uh, again, you think about the average, average customer who gets up in the morning uh, getting ready for a job, he or she doesn't want to go to, sits at a table, their kids don't want to talk to them, they're they're on TikTok with uh, earbuds in, you go to work, you work in your cubicle all day long, get gas, no one's there, get some money, no one's there, and get to a bar, and they want you to order off an iPad and, and be right. served by a Roomba. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> I just, so if I was going back into business, as I say, the the, the more time goes on, the, the more, uh, more I feel good about my model, right? I, I just... I'm glad it worked then, but it'd work even better yeah. now. I don't think your model is going anywhere. I think that there's going to be that person. I think what's going to happen is the industry is going to fragment into markets that cater towards certain needs. And I think different markets are going to have higher demand for different needs. Uh, but there's going to be that person out there, the introvert who just doesn't feel like making dinner tonight, who wants to go and 
have no emotional connection with anybody. Sure. Like yeah. that's going to be a market. That's going to be something, but there's, but the, the restaurants that, you know, spark you up, the, the ones that we've been talking about, the, uh, the more emotionally human element where you're going to for a relationship. I don't see those things going anywhere. I think it's one of the few industries that our product is the emotional connection. Yeah. And we, we, we try to say the product is the food and the service and the, the drink. But really, at the end of the day, like you pointed out, it's the people that we come back for. It's, we're subconscious. We're not even aware of it. Yeah. And, and, it, and, yeah. and, and as much as we enjoy the, the service that we get when we're there, if you think about it on the, on the next ring out, you know, we also want to be part of a tribe. Right. Right. You think about this is a T-shirt. I've got hundreds of bar and restaurant T-shirts. This place here, I'm, I'm a fan of a of a pork broccoli rub sandwich that they sell out of a market stall in Philadelphia. Ooh, Why they're later this week? They, they or next week they go to the next. They won uh, a couple of years ago. Won best sandwich in in the country. Nice, and it's pretty much all they sell. And uh, why is that important? I'm now part of their tribe. I've only yeah. been there once, I'm and gone. I'm wearing I'm wearing their flag. Right? I, people like being part of something. They like having a story behind it. They like. I like I like that I just told you and you lit up and you're going there right yeah. I've now just given you value in something and I, and I vouch for it right right that's how this works There's a reason why the last question I ask all my guests is who do you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor on the show that you made for us today Oh so many people um and you know I might pick a, a person or two who really could offer value to some of the things that we've talked about today when it comes to true um, hospitality. And you may or may not have had them on. I don't know. Um, two guys that come to mind right away that are, I would, I would pay my staff. I was opening a bar to go and sit in their bar for three days and just watch them work. Are the two Julio's uh, Julio Cabrera at La Trova. Have you interviewed him? I haven't, but I want to, and I'm headed to my, I'm, I'm, I think I might've mentioned it off air. I'm, I want to buy an RV. Yeah. Obviously, with winter fast approaching, I'll be heading south. Florida is going to be top on my list. Yeah. So I would love to get him on the show. Cause so I, I can things. introduce you if you'd like. He's Please. a very good friend. Studied with me as well for a number of years. And um, so Julio and what he's done at La Trova, it is, it's the only place in this country that I know of, I'm, I'm sure there could be more, that is the full package for hospitality. I mean, you walk in the door from the Cantoneros behind the bar, Latin Grammy winning artists playing music for you. Incredible Cuban coffee, the eighties bar in the back, the patio with cigars. He just opened up his own line of cigars, the rum collection. It's unbelievable. Beautiful. I can't wait to go. If you do go, um, and if you're lucky and they're all there, his wife, Betty works there. Who's awesome. You should talk to her. When's the best time to go make that happen? He's, well, he travels a lot, so I, I could find out, but, and then his son, Andy, heads up the bar and he is incredible. Next so, generation. Love it. Yeah. You said two people. Who's the second person? Well, the other Julio is, um, Julio Bamejo at, um, at Tommy's. Do you know? No. Oh my God. So Where, where's Tommy's located? in, uh, well, they told me it was in San Francisco. It's, <laughs> it's not downtown. Uh, and it's San Francisco is like DC is the traffic's awful. So right. it took me a while to get out there. It's, it's only a, yeah, ten miles outside of town. I don't know the area that well. So one of the suburbs. Yeah, it's Tommy's Tommy's Mex- Mexican restaurant. So you know um, Tommy's Margarita. No. Oh, it's my favorite. One of my favorite drinks. Instead of um, triple sec, using the agave nectar, fresh lime, tequila. Uh, Julio came up with that. So oh, it's a cool. modern classic. It's all over the world now. So the two Julios. Yeah, and they're two totally different operators. They're really good friends. Two totally different operators. 
Um, so one's a Cuban place, one's a Mexican place. And uh, Julio Bamejo, um, anybody who's ever sat at the bar with him behind it can tell you everything that happened during that time. I love that. I've never met anybody that, that can say that. Man, I got some work cut out for me. I would love to get these guys on the show. Thank you very much. And uh, before we say goodbye, obviously, um, if we listen to today's episode and we're resonating and jiving with what you had to share and um, knowing that there's a service out there where we can connect with you and work with you, what is the best way to connect? I think the email. So it's, what's that? Oh, the website. Okay, yeah, we just redid the, the yeah, website. Allie off camera. Allie's off camera, reminding me what my website is. <laughs> so it's uh, you, Sean Finter, so S-E-A-N-F-I-N-T-R dot M-E. So seanfinter.me. Um, yeah, so, you know, not a pitch. If anyone is obviously interested in the coaching, I'd be more than happy to talk about that. But if there's anything you heard today, like we have a, a pretty significant vault of, of tools, templates, and everything else, and I always just love to help people yep. that are stuck and – so you're not promoting it, but I am, I'm here organically. Um, the whole, my whole thing, my whole, you know, shtick with restaurant stoppables. I let the industry steer where I go and who I talk to. And, um, you're here for a reason because people who have worked with you are successful and they have amazing things to say about you and the work you do. Um, and I want more people to know about the work you're doing. So thank um, you. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, so you shared your email. You did mention there's a book. What's the name of that title, and well, when can we expect it? So I don't want to jinx you by saying it out loud. Yeah, well, the the book, the short story on this is that I, I wrote a book years ago after a near death experience in an airplane. Oh man! Uh, and I thought to myself, oh my god, my kids are so young, like I haven't written anything down. Uh, so I wrote it all down in, into a book, and it was like a monster. It's just too big. And uh, any a mentor of mine who passed passed away recently, uh, Ivan was the the um, at the time he was the president of Diageo uh, U.S. and then became global, and uh, so it went to his people. And and long story short, we turned it into eight video courses that went into They're around training. fifty countries around the world called it's, Business of Arts. They own that now, right? They they had the rights for a period of time, and now I've got it back. Oh, good. And so I am taking one piece of that and turning it into a book, which is the the working. Well, I won't tell you the working title, but the other working title is is Napkinomics, which is goes to the story about how to how to put the entire organization onto one page, and then how to teach them hospitality, how to make sure you get the right people. It has worked for thousands of businesses, like over five thousand businesses around the world. And uh, I'd be happy to send it out to anybody here to kind of show you what it looks like and the tool and the whole deal. I'd love to share it. I think it's a Diageo Bar Academy is the new platform that they got going on. They've right got now. it. They've got up there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's a. I think it's free, isn't it? Yeah. There's there's a the the tools there in the template, but if you if you go to the website I told you earlier at seanfinter.me, I'll give you a video on, on implementation on how got to it. launch it at the at your business. There's cool. about a thirty minute video that goes with it. Awesome. Uh, again, this is I don't think I actually said it yet, but uh, episode one thousand and twenty seven. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash one zero two seven. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any tools or books mentioned and how to connect with Sean over there. Uh, Sean, this is where I say thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I just ask questions. You you make what I do possible. I can't do what I do without people like you. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. All right. Thank you very much. And I hope we got time for a cigar. Oh, man, I hope so. I'll make (laughs) time for it. (laughs) 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. This is one that I was looking forward to. Lots of people saying amazing things about Sean Finter and what he's created in bar metrics and uh, what he created with his restaurant groups and what he's doing with his coaching now. Uh, just nothing but amazing things being said about this guy. So uh, super psyched to have this one wrapped up and in the vault archived here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And I would love to get this back, this guy back on the show. Uh, I think we just barely scraped the surface. We had a, a great conversation after the recording. And um, just a special thanks to everyone who made this one possible. And thanks again to Sean Finter for coming on. So if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more like it, we need your support. There's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with anyone and everyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry. Really, I would love for you guys to get the word out there on this one uh, and get this into as many ears as possible across the industry. And then lastly, you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. This is where we're trying to connect our guests with each other and our guests with the next generation of leaders, you. uh, And really, the the vision behind the network is just creating a safe space for people to come together and to talk, to to get it out, uh, to find camaraderie. And I don't necessarily want to be the guy with all the answers, but I know a lot of gals and guys out there that have answers and I want to connect you with those people and uh, if you're new to the industry or if you're looking to expand and and you're overwhelmed by all the noise out there well let us help you cut through the noise because we've I've interviewed over a thousand successful restaurateurs and the network is literally just a, a an accumulation of all the leads we've had over the years so I can fast track you um and Speaking of the network, we have some things coming up in the network. Uh, If you would like to hang out with me Monday, September 18th, that's actually today when this goes live, I'm live at noon. So if you're listening to this Monday morning and you want to hang out with me, offer some coffee and Eric at noon Eastern time, join the network. Uh, We have another coffee with Eric scheduled October 9th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Again, that's October 9th, 3.30 p.m. Eastern. And then we have a Q&A with Casey Anton, uh, the, the woman behind Profit First for restaurants. If you've been interested in Profit First, that is October 24th. And then we have uh, Ed Doherty coming live on the network to talk about power skills in the restaurant business. All right, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.